Why don't you join us? Where are you going? We're following our dream. Really? I have a dream too. Huh? But you'll think it's stupid. No, no, no. tell us, tell us. Well, I want to go to Bombay, India and become a movie star. You don't go to Bombay to become a movie star. You go where we're going, Hollywood. Sure, if you want to do it the easy way. We picked up a weirdo. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring. The most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, Dictionary.com defines a rainbow as a bow or arc of prismatic colors appearing in the heavens opposite the sun and caused by the refraction and reflection of the sun's rays in drops of rain. So why the hell are there so many songs about them? I think we're going to answer that shortly. Um, <laughs> actually, I was trying to I was trying to write in my brain. Can you actually come up with a lot of songs about rainbows? I can't come up with that many. Um, let's see. I mean, there's the obvious one. There's a I know I've seen a clip from a later episode of or there's somewhere over the rainbow. There's always chasing rainbows. Yeah. I think there's yeah. a later episode of the Muppet Show where Debbie Harry lists off a few that aren't the rainbow connection. Uh, there's uh, Rainbow in the Dark by Dio. Mm-hmm. There's James Dio. a Japanese band called Dark and Ciel, and that translates to rainbow in French. I'm sure that there's... I'm sure Prince did a song about rainbows at some point, right? Uh, I remember... So many songs, I can only imagine. I think the Rainbow the Diamonds, People, the Rainbow Children? I feel like the Diamonds and Pearls video had some sort of a rainbow reference. I don't remember if he had one specifically about rainbows. Well, if you're wondering why we're talking about rainbows, it's because today we're talking about the Muppet movie. This is a feed of Lunatic Daring, where podcasts about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started talking about said Muppet movie, I'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, lunaticdaring.com, where you can find our watch list, our bibliography, and all of our episodes. We have been going through the season three of The Muppet Show, but we have ground that to a halt to talk about the Muppet movie. Now, before we get started, you had never watched this in its entirety before, right? That is true. I have not. I have not seen this. I don't think I've actually seen anything outside of that initial Rainbow Connection scene. Awesome. I've watched it a few times this week. Watched it with my family tonight. I'm excited to talk about it. Um, I think it'll be a long conversation. So uh, let's just get started. Let's get things started. I'm Stedler. I'm Waldorf. We're here to heckle a Muppet movie. Gentlemen, that's straight ahead. Private screening room D. Private screening? Yeah, they're afraid to show it in public. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh look at this place. Yeah. What a dump. Bunch of weirdos around here. Look at them. So, uh, what'd you think? Um, this movie is a fever dream. So there's... <laughs> There's an interesting difference between covering this movie versus covering a a typical episode because you've got the frame narrative. There's a serial aspect that's ongoing. A movie is supposed to be something self-contained. And I'll come back to this a few times because there are a few anchor points, but it works specifically because it's a fever dream and it's very self-aware. As soon as you get to the church and you see the script, you're like, oh, no, I know exactly what this is. And from a writing standpoint, it doesn't matter what corner they happen to write themselves into. <laughs> because they've yeah. got a screenplay and people are just going to be able to show up when they need to show up because the screenplay is telling them to. But it doesn't feel cheap. 
It doesn't because... It should feel cheap, but it doesn't. Everything's operating on that same diegetic level. Like, yes, everything from the way that time expands and contracts, because they've only got so much time to get to L.A., but we definitely have time for a date scene and or a kidnapping. <laughs> it's just... There's always time for a song. And reprises thereof. It's... <laughs> Yeah, but did you think it was funny? Oh, yeah. No, I laughed a lot. And <laughs> the thing is, I, I bring up the fever dream aspect not as a, a detriment at all. I think it actually sells the whole thing very well, and it works much better for it. But a lot of the yeah. things that I would usually gripe about in a movie in terms of storytelling decisions or things like that are completely excused because... That's the movie. Like, you just suspend the disbelief right out of the gate. Um, the fact that our first scene is a screening room sells that. We're just going to kind of work our way chronologically through the film, but you're right. The, the movie does open. Of course, this is before, but before we start talking, we're talking about the Muppet movie. It's uh, directed by James Frawley, written by Jack Burns and Jerry Jewell. Um, it was released in the United States on June 22nd, 1979. It's produced by ITC entertainment. And the other really important credit is the music is by Paul Williams and Kenny Asher. We didn't talk about Kenny Asher that much, but when Jim Henson brought Paul Williams on, he said, uh, listen, I'll write the songs, but I need someone else to help me write the music. So he brought on composer Kenny Asher to, to do the actual score. Interesting that it was co-written by Jack Burns, huh? Given that he was kind of given the boot. I think that that was something that was not personal. The final draft that we're watching is more Jerry Jewell than it is Jack Burns. True. As well. Burns wrote, what happened was uh, Jack Burns wrote the initial drafts. Mm -hmm. And so he's responsible for a lot of the kind of rat-a-tat jokes. And then Jerry Jewell came in and made it basically more Muppet. And also, and I'll, we'll talk about this later, kind of a bio of Jim Henson. <laughs> there's, a, there's a, it's very, I would say in this Kermit is more Jim than he is in anything else. And Jim does an amazing job. Like just usually when we see Kermit's never really an audience surrogate, but he's, right. he's typically going to be the one sane man in a room. He's, he is our, our avatar for lack of a better term, but he's our calm center. Exactly. And in this case, Kermit's a character. He's, Oh yeah. He's the central character and he's moving through, but it's, it's a very subtle difference. And seeing Jim just get to ham up a lot of Kermit's reactions to things or the back and forth with Fozzie. It's great. As you said, we open at worldwide studios, which is a back lot. I don't know what back lot they actually used. I tried to look it up. It looks to me like it's Sony, um, quite possibly the old Sony lot or maybe the old Culver lot, but I, I, or Warner brothers, but I'm not hundred percent sure. And I couldn't find it. And a town car pulls up with Statler and Waldorf in it. The first Muppet you see, and they are here to heckle the Muppet movie, not to watch it. I should say before we start again, <laughs> I did read a screenplay. I read a draft of the screenplay for this film that's dated June of 1978. The shot in July of 1978. So if this wasn't the shooting draft, it was pretty close. And there are some key differences that I'm going to highlight as we go along just every once in a while. But if you really want a breakdown of the differences between the script and the final film, go to toughpigs.com. And they have a really great series where they broke down all the differences between the script and the film. And it's a really fascinating read. It's like a nine part series that they did on there. So definitely check that out. But um, I read it myself and I had some observations of my own that I wanted to kind of. In the first one being originally, <laughs> there was also the arrivals of Kermit, Robin and Piggy outside the gate. But I think this is better. It's nice and short. Mm. What's the setup, right? The setup is it's not just that the Muppets have made a movie. It's that we're going to watch the Muppets watching their movie for the first time. It's a very Hollywood thing. It's not in a big theater. It's in a screening room. That's so Hollywood. <laughs> so we get into the screening room 
and it's full of Muppets. Ah, I'm so nervous. If I'm not funny, I won't be able to live with myself. Well, then you'll have to get another apartment, won't you? You know, I hear this movie is dynamite. Get your fresh organic popcorn. Only a buck. Oh, honey, buy me some, please. Oh, sure, Mama, nothing's too good for my woman. Woman! 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 So, is this the first time we have any sort of mention of Janice and Floyd being a thing? Directly, yes. Although, there have been some references on The Muppet Show, I do believe. Remember Pearl Bailey and him? Hmm. And Floyd? And he talked about his main squeeze? Mm-hmm. Got him his jacket. Like, I think there's been a couple of references. I think I think in the jousting one, it's pretty clear there are a couple. Okay. In the Pearl Bailey episode. But this is the first time. I mean, they're legitimately holding hands mm-hmm. in this. And, you know, what does he say? Nothing's too good for my woman, mm-hmm. you know? So I wrote down all the Muppets that are in the screening room. I'm not going to read them off. I'd like to say, how did Baskerville get a ticket? Rolf needed a plus one. <laughs> We will establish later that post-Lassie Rolf just doesn't want to get involved with women. And he doesn't for very long at a given time. Link is in the screening despite not really appearing in the film, which is which is one disappointment. I wish we had had a little bit of Link, but there's really not room for him. He's also, I think they wanted that core. Like they, we yeah. don't see uh, Borgard or, I mean, we see him in the uh, the finale briefly. Yeah, but we'll talk about the finale. That's a, that's its all. It's That's its own thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think they just want the core, like, mainline Muppets. So we've got to have Gonzo, we've got to have Fozzie, we've got to have Kermit, we've got to have Picky. And Camilla. Don't forget Camilla. Oh, yeah, of course, Camilla. This is this is a, this is a lot of scream time for Camilla. It's true. Um, she has a couple of funny moments, too. She does. So it's obviously what you'd expect from the Muppets is chaos. Piggy's brought an entourage of pigs, mm-hmm. uh, including Link. Maybe that's why Link's there. It's just because Piggy's surrounded by pigs. I think Piggy just didn't want to have a hostile work environment when she went in. <laughs> For the next Muppets in Space sketch, Doctor Strange Pork is out of his mind anyway. He's not going to notice it. But Link, Link will nurse that grudge. One thing I noticed, Bunsen and Beaker not sitting together. (laughs) Beaker's like in the back and Bunsen's up front. I mean, I wouldn't sit next to him either if I was Beaker. Kermit keeps trying to introduce the movie to the crowd, but they're really riled up. They just want to see the movie. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the first screening of the Muppet movie. But before we begin, I'd like to thank everyone who contributed to this film, starting with the little people from the hairdressers to special effects. That's enough of that, Harry. On to the costume designers, to the prop makers. Speech is not necessary, dear. Roll the film. Yeah, but I'd like to thank everybody for all of their hard work and their patience and their Kermit introduces the film where they're here to watch the Muppet movie. And right before it starts, Robin, cute little Robin, asks Kermit if this is how the Muppets really got started. And Kermit's response is classic. He says, Uncle Kermit, is this about how the Muppets really got started? Well, it's sort of approximately how it happened. Which means it's not at all how it happened. We're going to take certain liberties. It's fine. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So then we open up on the sky. Now, originally, in the original draft, we were supposed to open up in outer space. Actually, we were supposed to open up outside of the Milky Way. Hmm. And the camera was supposed to come through the Milky Way while you were hearing this gorgeous orchestral music. Wait. Through the Milky Way. Wait. Through our solar system. Wait. Hmm? Did the original Muppet movie have the heavy metal intro? Is that... Is someone going to go down? Or, or like Men in Black, like the end of Men in Black or something. Okay. But, but yeah, it was supposed to go from like outer space through our solar system, to Earth, to a continent, then to the swamp. 
but they decided that was way too much money. Uh, so instead we get a beautiful shot of the clouds and we get a couple of really great crane shots shot on a real swamp. Um, it looks like, I'm sure, um, you know, it's like the Okefenokee or something. This is so beautifully done, I think, because you have this opening kind of sweeping orchestral score and then you start to hear the plucking of a banjo. And then you start to hear Kermit singing, of course, the Rainbow Connection. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? Rainbows are visions, but only illusions. And rainbows have nothing to hide. Then the camera keeps drifting down, and then there's a dissolve, and we're on a soundstage. A soundstage that looks like a real, a soundstage that they imported trees from Georgia to put on the soundstage to create this swamp. And they're shooting in LA, so they brought them all the way from Georgia. Um, it's a full swamp, and it has this, and it opens with this gorgeous crane shot as the camera comes down into the swamp, and you don't even see Kermit at first. Did you notice? You don't even see Kermit. He's, he's like hidden behind a tree. And you hear him singing, and then the camera kind of drifts a little bit, and you finally see Kermit. And it's a it's a wowzers of a shot. And it's also just amazing because Kermit is sitting on a log in the middle of a pond singing. Where where where's where's Jim? Nick? Oh, he's underwater. <laughs> he's underwater. There's no way he's not. No, he is. He is. <laughs> in order to do this shot, they built a six-foot tall diving bell. And the idea was Jim would be good, go into this bell and they would submerge it underwater. They'd put the log on top. He would put his arm in a rubber sleeve up through it. He'd have a monitor in there with him and he would control Kermit. Well, they got to set and they realized the water was only like four feet deep that they in the set they had built. So Jim said, fine, just give me a four foot diving bell. They're like, but you're six three. And he's like, I'll make it work. So, so Jim Henson in this scene, while he is puppeteering Kermit, while he's sitting on this log, Jim Henson is in a four foot container that is submerged under the water. He has a breathing tube. He has a flashlight. He has a copy of the script. He has a microphone. He has a monitor so he can see you know, what he's doing. And he is. <laughs> and at one point he was down there for three hours without coming up. And he had to keep going up and down, uh, in and out of that contraption for like three days while they were shooting it. This might be one and the same. I've heard it too many times to ignore it. It's something that I'm supposed to be. You know, he loves to give you a wow. Mm -hmm. It's a visually and technically spectacular moment. And it's so, you know, and, and I think it was Goals who said, yeah, it was miserable, but Jim would never ask anybody to do. Jim would never ask anybody to do anything he wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. And he was just he, he sat like Lotus Lotus style and just kind of because he had to operate Kermit and his banjo arm. It's pretty impressive. The song, of course, is great. Mm -hmm. I love this song very much and I have for a long yeah, time there's uh there's certain aspects of the uh the Muppet music sensibility that don't always overlap but this song and it's not easy being green and moving right along which I don't think I'd actually really heard before this watch through those are very near and dear such a beautiful way to open a movie you know it gives you I don't know it sets the tone it sets it 
Because what 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 Henson's what is Henson trying to do in this movie? He's trying to put the Muppets in the real world. Mm-hmm. So that's what this kind of introduction does, right? Like, yeah, it's a soundstage, but it's hard. I I didn't know that when I was a kid. It's real hard to tell it's a soundstage. I, I spoke before to like the the presence of the script, and we'll get to that in a moment as well. But the fact that the first thing we see is them going into the room for the screening creates a a sort of a meta diegetic level where you're more you're more forgiving and you're more likely to accept things in the inner narrative because it's a work of fiction within that world as well. And so those barriers to entry are sort of removed by just calling it such. So as Kermit finishes up his lovely song, um, really, I I love that they let the whole song play while the credits play. Mm -hmm. And we get our first of many, many cameos um, as we hear the voice of a fisherman screaming for help. Help! Hello! This is a serious call for help! Uh, yeah. Someone help! Playing Bernie, the agent. Uh, Dom was, of course, the guest star in Muppet Show episode 211. If you want to learn about Dom DeLuise, you can go back to our episode about that. And Bernie is actually Jim's agent's name. It was Bernie Brillstein, was it not? It was. Yes, it was a reference to Bernie Brillstein. It was good to see Dom. Oh, yeah. He was great. Do you know one thing I did really... You know, I've seen this movie so many times. Uh, I can't remember the first time I saw it. I was real little. After all that we've watched, starting with Sam and Friends and, and all the way through this first half of Muppet Show season three, I find watching the movie even like more satisfying. Yes, there's a lot of new faces in it too, guests, but some of them are like old friends almost, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and Dom DeLuise, because we were such big fans of his episode, it was really nice to see him. The old friends bit, I think, is a pretty important part because... For all of the chaos and all of the the occasional bitterness that'll seep into the Muppet Show, it is about a community, and it's about these people just sort of interacting and, and building up those relationships. Found family a little bit, exactly. Yeah. There's well, there's a great line later in the Gon- in Gonzo's song, uh, which I think is one of the themes of the movie, which is "There's not a word yet for old friends who have just met." So Bernie is uh, coming through the swamp and uh, he's looking for directions. He's lost. And we get our first running gag. You with the banjo. Uh, can you help me? I have lost my sense of direction. Uh, have you tried Harry Krishna? No, you know what Harry Krishna is? It's a reference to a George Harrison song, right? Well, it's actually a religion. I, I know. That was a bad joke. But uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just for people who don't don't happen to know because the joke can fly over your head if you don't like it did with my children. Um, Hare Krishna is a, is a colloquial name for the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, called ISKCON, which is a Hindu movement. It was founded in 1966 in New York City, actually, although it's mostly international now. It's not as popular in the U.S. as it used to be. Today, it has over a million followers. Its history and its ethos and everything I'm not going to go into because that's too much. But it's basically kind of like uh, exported Hinduism, maybe the best way to describe it. So it turns out that Bernie, did you see? So Bernie pulls out Variety. He hears Kermit sing and he really likes it. He pulls out Variety. Did you see who was on the back of Variety? I did, and I'm blanking on who it was because I know they looked There's familiar. a big-ass ad for Liberace. Yep. <laughs> he opens up Variety and there's just a big picture of Liberace. They couldn't get him a second time, but they wanted him to know they were friends. And Bernie tells him, hey, dude, they're holding auditions for talented frogs. Now, this is very specific. Talented frogs. Very specific. But we're going to, as we'll, as we'll learn, there's a market for frogs, apparently. I've got a, yeah, <laughs> it's an interesting thing. Um, we'll, we'll get oh, into it a little bit. This movie gets a little more. sadistic. This movie gets a little sadistic. <laughs> there's, there's a dark element to it. There's also, I don't think it's something that any of the, 
the scriptwriters would have set out to do. But there's a weird commentary it's doing on like, especially in the 70s, racial politics. And we'll get into that, a, that. a little more in a couple of scenes. But there is, I remember there's a, a Mike Wallace interview with Rod Serling where he asks, because the Twilight, I, this is a tangent, but just bear with me. He asks if Rod Serling thinks that television opportunities and film opportunities had gotten better for black actors since the Twilight Zone because he was one of the first people to really put them in prominent roles. And he made a comment about the fact that it's better that they're not always being thugs or things like that. But if they can only be doctors or professors or anything else like that, you're still not humanizing them. Right. And I'm paraphrasing what, what Serling said, but there is... I mean, that's always the one of the struggles with representation, right? Exactly. Yeah. But... There's also the added pressure of bearing that mantle, because we can look back at Sidney yes. Poitier fondly now, but there was a point in time in the 70s where a lot of people in the black community might not have been as big a fan because it seemed like he was trying to play to white audiences. Alligators? That's right. Did you say alligators? Read my lips. Alligators. It's just that I'm not used to alligators where I come from. See, I'm an agent. I, I winged in from Hollywood. Hollywood? That's right. Did you say Hollywood? Read my lips. Hollywood. This has some of my favorite dialogue in the movie, just because just it comes down to uh, Kermit's pronunciation of the word alligator. And he plays very well off of Dom. I was I was hoping we would yeah. see Dom again when we get to Hollywood. We Small spoiler, yeah. we don't. But it's it's okay. We still have like a chock full movie. And like I said, it's a fever dream. So Dom is there for a very specific purpose, and he fulfills that purpose. Now, I said I watched this four times this week. Once, I was heavily intoxicated. So, I do feel your fever dream <laughs> aspect to it because there is a little bit of that. But 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 I think that that aspect of it also allows it to be a movie that's really easy to drop in and drop out of. If you flip by it on television and you're halfway through, it's not like you have, you're like, oh, I missed the first half hour. No, you can just, you just watch it. There's also a tension that you'll find in a lot of movies that are intended to be family movies where you have to please the younger audience, but you also have to throw in something for the parents. And maybe sometimes that takes the form of sliding something past the radar. You can always tell a Pixar mom. But <laughs> the the thing about this is the, that fever dream aspect to the movie. It's Sorry, I think about Pixar moms. I cannot lie. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Uh, yeah. But. Yeah. The the thing is, with that, it's it's sort of like a gossamer aspect where everything's associative and everything is exactly where it's supposed to be. And so you just accept it as it comes. And there's no scrutiny there. And it doesn't, it's not that aversion to scrutiny that's like, don't judge me. It's just like, I mean, you can do that if you want, but you're missing the point. We're, we're here to tell, like, just have fun. This movie goes down real easy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of what you're saying as well, right? Yeah. But at the same time... I would argue the time I would argue and we'll get to it. The times where it tries to be more of a, a, a plot based story is I think it's weakest stuff. Mm -hmm. This ends with Kermit. He basically tells Kermit, hey, you know, they're looking for frogs out in Hollywood. Kermit goes to the movies every once in a while and he's like Hollywood. Now, to me, the most important change between the script and the movie is right here. In the screenplay, there's a lot of emphasis on Kermit becoming rich and famous. That's not completely gone. But in this original scene, in the shooting draft, Kermit's whole thing is becoming rich and famous. In the movie, his motivation is you can make millions of people happy. Millions of people happy. Now, those things go hand in hand, but I think it's a very important change that they made. They discovered it during production. They could have dubbed it and discovered it in post-production. I don't know. Or they, they, they caught it while they were shooting. But it 
it changes the whole tenor of Kermit's journey. He seems much more cynical and greedy in the script, which actually, in my opinion, more suits television Kermit Mm -hmm. because we've seen him be a cheapskate, right? We've seen him be a capitalist. But for this version of Kermit, I don't think it's the right motivation. I think that's a hugely important change from the script to the movie. And I just wanted to point that out. And I think it's the correct call. I, I would agree with that. In the original script, Kermit then goes to Kermit and George's bait shop, which is a bait shop that he owns with a, and this is supposed to be a cameo in the movie from an old man named George who smokes cigars. You can guess who maybe that was supposed to be. I love George Burns. I didn't know about him before <laughs> like a few months ago, but I, I love George Burns. So there was supposed to be a George Burns cameo and he was supposed to be like Kermit's best friend. And they owned this bait shop together. And it was going to be George that kind of was like gave Kermit permission to leave the swamp and go follow his dream. But they cut that. And I think smartly. And they go straight to something that amazed people, despite the fact that being the third time they've done it, Kermit riding a bicycle. It's different in this case, though, because typically we don't have a moving camera around it. Oh, no, it's obviously far more complex. I mean, it's a common this time. It's a combination of marionette work from a crane and then also RC. But we have seen this before. But you're right. It, it is much more dynamic. And um, he passes by a sign for Doc Hopper's French fried frog legs. Have you ever had frog legs? Not that I can remember. I might have when I was younger. I, I did grow up in, in Virginia. But so this this plot line in particular was part of what drove home the whole subtext thing for me, because two movies popped to mind. There was Undercover Brother, which had Billy D. Williams as a weird KFC mogul who is doing things that are bad for the community while still being like that face. And then there's also black dynamite, which had the malt liquor thing, but basically weaponizing an individual, a charismatic individual in order to sell negative things to their own community. There's probably a better articulated trope name for it, but it is something that I've seen a few times. No, that's interesting. I wasn't expecting to see it in this, but as soon as I saw those frog legs, I was like, Oh, this is okay. I think this movie overestimates how many frogs people eat in the United States. <laughs> to be fair, his decision-making processes in general are very questionable. In this movie, frog legs are like the... Well, yeah, but it's it, we'll see in a second there's more. Like, frog legs are like the food in, uh, in, in this world. So Kermit passes by the sign, he gets distracted, and here we meet, for the first time, Max, who is going to be one of our villains, kinda. So, I saw Max, and everything about the way that... The actor embodies Max, just screams Scooter. He is very Scooter. And I had recently yeah. rewatched Cool World, the old Bakshi film, where if annoyed kills a human when they're still an animated form, that person becomes annoyed. I was waiting because I, I wasn't knowing. I didn't know when they would slide Scooter in since up to this point, Scooter has always been attached to the theater. Is Animal just going to like accidentally kill this guy and turn him into a Muppet? Yeah, they don't go that far. I would have bought it, though. Max is played by an actor named Austin Pendleton. Uh, Austin was a Yale graduate, uh, and he's most known for probably being in the Muppet movie. Um, but he's been working steadily ever since the 60s. Some of his other notable movie roles, uh, he was in Catch-22. He was in Nick's favorite movie, What's Up, Doc? He was in Short Circuit and My Cousin Vinny. He's also done a lot of TV with diverse credits ranging from Homicide Life on the Street to Tales from the Crypt to Miami Vice to Good Times. Now, Austin Pendleton, I read an interview with him. This is kind of weird. I read an interview with him just from like last year, and he said that this was a very unhappy set. That James Frawley, the director, didn't want to be there, that it was very tense, and that this is and that, that tension is the reason why the Muppets never used another outside director again. Hmm. 
And, and I, I can understand that. However, I have found nothing else. Jim Frawley has nothing but good things had, had. He's passed away since. But in his in interviews, Jim Frawley has had nothing had nothing but good things to say. Uh, Dave Golds had nothing but good things to say in an interview I read from him. There's no indication in the Brian J. Jones book that they didn't get along. So maybe Austin Pendleton just had a bad time. That's a possibility. But another thing you that I'm, I'm tracking, though, is, as time goes on, is a lot of things that were considered standard practice are now being called under scrutiny and just being like, maybe we shouldn't have this auteur be able to do what they want or that's yeah, his business as usual. So Kermit almost gets squashed by a steamroller and then he makes maybe the worst pun in the movie. Yeah. If frogs couldn't hop, I'd be gone with the Schwinn. <laughs> it was a Schwinn and a miss, but <laughs> um, the key point of this moment is to get rid of Kermit's bike. Um, but Max sees Kermit and Max very Max is wowed by Kermit. He's like, first of all, he's like, everybody's like, look, it's a f-ing frog on a bicycle. So he's kind of the audience in that moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then uh, Max, uh, this is but this is going to plant a seed for for later with Max. Max is just at first just impressed with Kermit as a, as a basically as a living being after Kermit uh, almost dies. <laughs> Movie almost ends very quickly, um, but luckily he could hop. And we cut to the El Slizo Cafe. So I've got a question. Because ostensibly Kermit lives around here, right? I don't know how far he biked. <laughs> right. What yeah. does he do with his time if he's never been to El Slizo? He goes into town for a move, double feature every Saturday. Okay, well, there's that. He sits in this. He, he, he runs a bait shop. They just cut that out. That's not canon anymore. Uh, so we cut to the El Slizo Cafe that Kermit definitely says, ooh, foreign food. And you hear a piano, and, and Kermit decides that a frog's got to eat, and he goes inside. And then Wild West style, <laughs> a man comes flying out the front door of the El Slizo, uh, landing in the trash. This is a this is a cameo by Mr. James Coburn. A uh, rough place, huh? That's the toughest, meanest, filthiest pest hole on the face of the earth. Well, why not complain to the owner? I am the owner. Was he in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, or am I confusing him with someone else? Um, no, James Coburn. Now, I'm not going to get into him too much, because he actually is going to be a guest star in The Muppet Show in episode 505. Hmm. Um, but he's he's a Hollywood tough guy. By that point, he had already been in The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, Midway, Pat Garrett and the Billy the Kid, and the Our Man Flint series of spy movie spoofs, which is kind of Austin Powers before Austin Powers. But we're, we're going to learn a lot more about James Coburn in season five. Hmm. But he's just there to tell you that uh, the El Slizo is a rough joint. So Kermit comes into into the joint and it is pretty rough, but they're serving. Did you notice though? They're only serving like frog for, for food. I also noticed that Kermit's the only frog that we see in the inner movie. Yes. He, he's the only frog that we see in the film itself. Cause I guess the rest of them aren't anthropomorphic. Maybe there's just a shortage of them. <laughs> Maybe Doc's Doc's got them all on a farm somewhere. Doc realized there was a certain flaw in his plan because he needs a spokes frog. So Kermit comes into the El Slizo and it's a very, you know, it's more of a bar than it is a, anything, right? It's a cafe, but it's more just like a dive bar. It's a saloon. Yeah, it's a saloon. Yeah, roadhouse, a saloon. Um, and he, he saddles up to the bar and we get another cameo by who? Madeline Kahn. Hello, sailor. Buy me a drink. Oh, easy. I, I'm not a sailor. I'm a frog. That's a small talk and buy me a drink. I don't even know you. I don't know what the accent is that she's doing. This is the Lily Von Stupp. It's just like German. dialed back a couple of levels, but this is absolutely Lily Von Stupp. Kermit is confused by this woman asking him asking him to buy her a drink. And then her uh, her boyfriend leans in and we get a cameo by Mr. Telly Savalas. Hey. 
You're making a move with my girl. No, sir. He did too. He touched me. Ugh. Did you recognize Telly Savalas? I do. I can't figure out where from. So he's the son of Greek immigrants. He's a World War II veteran, a psychology major, a bald icon, and a sex symbol. Um, he's most known as TV's Kojak. That's it. With his trademark lollipop. Um, he also played Blofeld in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is the uh, only Bond movie with George Lazenby in it. But he leans in and he starts up. He starts up our uh, our second running gag. Go watch. You'll get what? No, you see, that's just a myth. Yeah, but she's my myth. No, no, myth, myth. Man, we get a lot of cameos in the El Slizo. Mm-hmm. And then we get cameo by Miss Carol Kane. Myth, myth. Yeah. Carol Kane, you probably know her from Princess Bride, right? Yes. She Was she in Scrooged? She was also in Scrooged. She was the ghost of Christmas present, right? Yeah. Yeah, she was also in um, Mike Nichols' Carnal Knowledge, Hal Ashby's The Last Details, Sidney Lumet's Dog Day Afternoon, and Woody Allen's Annie Hall. That's a really good run of 70s movies. 90s kids will know her as the granny in the Addams Family movies. She was. She's still working. She'll turn 70 next year. And then we get another cameo, because who's playing the piano? Mr. Paul Williams. Mr. Paul Williams. If you want to know more about Paul Williams, go back to Muppet Show episode number 108. I don't even know. I don't even consider the Paul Williams thing necessarily a cameo. It's just a kind of a role. Uh, he's presented in the same way the cam- the cameos are presented. And he doesn't show I up guess. more than any of the other ones do. And Paul Williams introduces... Filling in for the vacationing El Slizo dancing girls, the funny, furry, fabulous, fuzzy bear. So I want to give them credit for making Fozzie a worse comedian than he was in season one. <laughs> I was wondering what they were going to do, because it's an origin story, right? Kermit's two seconds from going up on the stage and going full eight mile. But, like, the way that they had Fozzie take his bits and then just strip them back and make them worse was a very nice touch. Oh, yeah, he's awful. He's really bad. Hey, you're a great crowd. Thank you. Thank you and thank you. Hey, waka waka. Ah, waka waka waka. Here I am, Fuzzy Bear, to tell you jokes both old and rare. There was this sailor who was so fat. And then it cuts the audience and this very large man in a sailor outfit breaks a bottle on the table. like, how fat was he? Uh, he was so fat that everybody liked him and there was nothing funny about him at all. There is something very strange about just seeing Fozzie move. Well, oh, you're talking about the full body? The full body. It's similar to seeing uh, Gonzo move with a full body for the first time and just imagining like him chasing you down a hall. Fozzie's more like that ghost that just randomly shows up somewhere and he's still sort of like moving. There is a weirdness. A little bit, yeah. I think it still works. and I mean, it's done with a blue screen, obviously. Hmm. One important thing to remember, and I think I read this in a Dave Goals interview about the movie. Um, it was either Dave Goals or it was Jerry Jewell. One thing you have to remember about the Muppet movie, almost every shot in the movie is being done for the first time. They have no handbook to refer to. They have no other movies they can reference. No one has ever done this. No one has ever used puppets out in the real world as full characters in the way that they are do- as main characters in the way they are doing this. So every th- every time we see them full body, every time we see them do something, my my eight year old was blowing her was like was like racking her brain tonight trying to figure out how Fozzie was driving the car. And we'll talk about how Fozzie drove the car. But everything in- they're inventing almost every shot in this movie. Mm-hmm. So Fozzie comes up to do his act. Kermit makes a comment about him being lost, and the barback comes by and says, uh, Maybe you should try Harry Krishna. Grief for 
it's a running gag. And Kermit runs up because Fozzie's getting booed and stuff thrown at him. I mean, it's kind of sad. Fozzie's like, please don't. Please stop. (laughs) He's so sad about it. And um, Kermit walks up and says, do you know any dance routines? And he ends up on stage with Fozzie doing a dance routine to try to entertain the crowd. Can the frog dance? I'm not so sure now. (laughs) He learned. I think if, if Fozzie can get better at comedy, Kermit can get better at dancing. So we have this fun sequence where Fozzie and Kermit try to dance to entertain the crowd. It's their meeting. We get a little rapport between them. Great joke about uh, if you think the crowd is ugly, you should see the dancing girls. Mm-hmm. It's done with blue screen. There's very few effects in this movie that aren't done in camera, but this was a blue screen shot. Then in the window appears our buddy Max, followed by his boss, Mr. Doc Hopper. What'd you think of Doc? So I've never seen Deliverance, but when I imagine... <laughs> Some of the things that have been described from Deliverance, for whatever reason, a combination of that and the movie Ticks, which I should not have seen as a small child. For whatever reason, someone like Doc Hopper pops into mind as a character in there somewhere. Probably a villain. But, like, right. the guy that you don't know is actually part of the cannibal family. And that's probably <laughs> not, you know, fair. Well, uh, Doc was played by Charles Durning, a veteran New York actor with over 200 credits. Some of his more recognizable will be Dog Day Afternoon, The Sting, Fury, North Dallas 40, Tootsie, Dick Tracy, Hudsucker Proxy, and he played Papio Daniel, Daniel in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He also played Peter's father on Family Guy. And he's just a classic, uh, classic, classic character actor. Of the things on that list, I think I've seen Dick Tracy. I just don't remember it. It's not very good. So when Doc is looking through the window, he's looking through with like, uh, what are those, like opera glasses? Mm, a little bit, yeah. And he's... Staring at Kermit's legs. He is obsessed with Kermit's legs. That's going to be important. Uh, Fozzie and Kermit's act doesn't go well. No, no, it does not. Then a bar brawl breaks out. Kermit ends up swinging around the ceiling fan. He ends up in the freaking piano. Fozzie is getting strangled by a biker. Did you see who's playing the biker that is strangling Fozzie Bear? So I couldn't get a good look at him because he's, I, I. it's not like he's under heavy makeup, but he's, he's got a hat on. He's got a hat on. He's like, he's incognito. Sunglasses. Yeah. Yeah. But it's Frank. <laughs> because Fozzie messed up one too many times. <laughs> it's Frank strangling Fozzie. And then there's a shot later where he throws Fozzie. Mm-hmm. Right. And when he does it, he goes waka waka and throws him. <laughs> so everything goes crazy. And then Fozzie pulls out a little uh, word play on the crowd. Drinks around the house. They're they're very literal in Muppet land. So they all run up to the roof and that gives Kermit and Fozzie time. Now they, once they realize there are no drinks up there, they don't come back down though. Like Kermit and Fozzie should be talking and then they come back down. They're like, Hey, Hey Dick, there's no, there's no booze up there. You know, everyone in that bar is going to invoke the gambler's fallacy and just think if I sit here long enough, they're going to show up or if I keep trying. So Fozzie and Kermit decide to become a team. How about you and me putting together an act? Ah, not sorry. I only work as a single. Oh, Okay. All right, you talked me into it. We'll be a team. Oh, good. Fozzie is the first person to join him on his trip to Hollywood. I believe that when Jerry Jewell and Jack Burns, but especially Jerry Jewell, when they were putting this movie together, when they were writing this script, that they were using Kermit partially as a Jim Henson surrogate. And part of the story of this movie is about Jim Henson and how he... Because remember how long Jerry Jewell had been with Jim, mm-hmm. right? He'd been with him since the 60s. And so I think part of the story of this movie is, yes, it's Kermit gathering these people going to Hollywood. I think it's also the story of Jim Henson making his family, mm-hmm. bringing all of them together in, in the kind of the found family that Jim created and culminating by making this movie. So I do think there's kind of a spirit of 
Jim, in Kermit in this that I don't always think is there, if that makes sense. My car's right outside! Ah. Gee, a Studebaker. Where'd you get it? Oh, my uncle left it to me. Huh? Is he dead? No, he's hibernating. What do you think of Fozzie's car? I mean, the things like the frame on that thing is probably full steel, and anything oh, it yeah. crashes into is going to look worse than the car does. Fozzie's is a uh, 1951 bullet nose Commander Studebaker. They used two of them, uh, one for long shots and one for Fozzie driving. We'll talk about Fozzie driving in a second. The uh, the the rigged one, the one that they used for Fozzie, uh, is now in the um, Studebaker National Museum in South Bend, Indiana. They made cars from like 1904 to like the late 60s, something like that. And they kind of faded away. But their cars were known, as you're pointing out, their cars were known to be very sturdy and reliable. Um, a Studebaker is, and the Commander was kind of their mainstream car. So it's like the Accord or the Civic, even maybe something like the Bug or something, you know. Hmm. So how do you think Fozzie drives the car? In universe or out of universe? Well, either I guess. First in universe, if you have. <laughs> I mean, he's short, right? So I'm assuming that there's some sort of block, or like he's he's got some phone books down there or something like old school thick phone books down there or something for him to like hit the pedals because it's a big car yeah they don't explain that um outside of that if we've got two cars then we probably have uh, actually that raises a big question though as they start adding more performers in this scene i would assume that like yeah. jim and frank are in the back seat and they're just sort of they've got a rig through the the backs of the seat that they can slide their hands into but that gets more complicated with more muppets in the car the rigged car is being driven by a little person in the trunk. In the trunk? They're in the trunk. They have they have installed a steering wheel and a monitor. And there is a little person stunt driver who is driving the car from inside the trunk. While they have hollowed out everything in the car except for the chairs. And they are laying down on the floor of the car. You know how the car's got that little nose? Mm-hmm. Kind of? That's hollow. And so they're putting their bodies in that partially. And they're like laying on their backs in the bottom of the car. They say it was actually one of the most complicated things they've ever done as far as trying to find the space. Mm-hmm. But the driving was being done by a little person hmm. um, or a dwarf, depending on uh, the book says dwarf, but I'm not I wasn't 100 percent sure. Preferred. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And then and then you have a fake steering wheel for Fozzie. This is obviously new for this, but they they'll do this in movies mm-hmm. Well, they'll have like you need a really cool shot of an actor driving, but, you know, they can't do that that move. Sometimes you'll have like someone else driving the car from a different point of view from the passenger seat or from something else. Before we get to the best part of being in the car with Fozzie, Doc stops them again. Howdy, Mr. Ah. Frog. I'm a businessman with a proposition. What? Let me show you something that might change your whole life. Hmm. I think Doc Hopper is fine. There's a lot more of Doc chasing them in the script. And I'm going to say, thank God they cut it. Really? There's a lot more. And I'm glad it's not there because I think the doc stuff just kind of I think it's fine. And I think it probably is necessary to drive the movie forward. We don't get a proper climax without it. Exactly. That's what I mean. You need it. You need it for the structure of the film. My problem with Doc Hopper has always been, well, not always. I didn't think about it in these terms when I was four. But, but but my problem with Doc Hopper is I feel like that is pretty much all he does. He's a one-dimensional character, but in a fever dream, that's not a problem. Actually, one of the old, they said when they were making this movie that Jim and Frank had a huge fight because Jim wanted Doc to have a redemption moment at the end. <laughs> Yeah, right. He kept saying, he's like, no, none of our characters are all bad. You know, he has to have a redemption. And all Frank said was bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to side with Frank on this one. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, so Doc shows Ker- so Doc wants Kermit to be his spokesperson for his uh, for his French fried frog legs chain of restaurants, which I can't imagine would be successful. I feel like it's it's a local it's a hyper localized one. And uh, he offers Kermit five hundred. Well, first he shows Kermit a really terrible commercial. Frog legs, frog legs, frog legs are fine. Poppers is the place. You should dine. There's cheese legs, bacon legs, chili legs too. French fried frog legs, barbecue. If you want just a snack, then here is the one. A frog leg burger on a bright green bun. Starring Doc as a frog. (laughs) Which is... Honestly, what sold me on the actor playing him, because there is no ego if you're willing to go through and do that. And Kermit's disgusted by it. And he wants he's like, I know I'm not an actor. I know I'm a great businessman and a sweet fella, but I do like the skills of a performer. You also make a lousy frog. I would, you know, imagine if that was you. And he offers Kermit five hundred dollars to make to do to do his be his spokesman. And if he does it, he'll get another five hundred dollars next year. That was uh, good money in those days. It wasn't. It still wasn't good money in 1979. <laughs> $500 a year. It was still pretty rough. Hmm. And uh, I do like, after Kermit says no, I do like Fozzie's, uh, which you consider a bear in a frog suit. <laughs> I mean, Fozzie's, he's hurting, you know? He's got to make money somehow. You know? Eventually, his uncle's going to want his Studebaker back when he wakes up from hibernating. Oh, Fozzie's going to be in trouble. He's going to be in so much trouble. He's going to be like Cameron and Ferris Bueller. When Cameron was in Egypt's land, let my Cameron go. So then we get to our our second big song. You said you like this. Tell us about I, it. I do. Uh, moving right along is... So I, I took a lot of road trips as a kid. We are not one of those families that sang in the car because it was whatever's on the radio and half of us didn't want to listen to that. But I've heard of other people having uh family sing-alongs and cars and stuff like that and most of the time it sounded like an awful experience but i could absolutely see myself totally selling just singing moving right along for at least like part of a road trip moving right along in search of good times and good news with good friends you can't lose this could become a habit Opportunity knocks once, let's reach out and grab it. Yeah. Together we'll nab it. We'll hitchhike bus or yellow cabin. Cabin? Moving right along. Foot loose and fancy free. Getting there is half the fun, come share it with me. I have done it hundreds of times with my family when I was a child. It, I, I can imagine it very clearly. We weren't that family, we didn't do that a lot, but moving right along, you gotta. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's just so much fun. It is. It's upbeat. It's not, it doesn't, it's not overly saccharine. It does exactly what it needs to do. And it's... Moving right along, we found a life on the highway. And your way is my way. So trust my navigation. California, here we come to find in the skyland. Palm trees and warm sand. So savvy, we just left Rhode Island. We did what? Just forget it. I'm moving right along. To- well, it's funny, too, and it's so great because um, moving right along is one of Co- Fozzie's catchphrases. Because mm-hmm. I-, I noticed that because I know this is Fozzie's song. And when we we're watching the Muppet Show, whenever he would, I was like, oh, he's saying he says moving right along like every once in a while. 
And so I was like, oh, that's where it came from. Yeah, they sing this great song, Moving Right Along, about... Moving Right Along. There's a great joke involving a fork in the road. They drive through Canada at some point because the whole idea is like they're driving, they're having a good time, but they don't know where they're going. They end up in Canada. They're, they end up driving east on their way to Los Angeles, all these things. It's a side quest. It's a series of side quests because, you know, the main plot line is <laughs> going to be there as soon as you're ready to go back to it. And uh, on their way, they also run into a um, what appears to be an eight foot tall yellow bird. Hey there, want to rip? Oh, no, thanks. I'm on my way to New York City to try to break into public television. Good luck. I mean, I don't run into it. That's what I'm saying. It is a road trip, so we should probably be a bit clear with our phrasing. Oh, that would be terrible. It would be a much darker movie at that point. We we just slide into David Lynch territory. And then there's also one of the greatest lines in history. Ah, a bear in his natural habitat. A Studebaker. Studebaker. Maybe that should be our episode title. I've got I'm going to have such a hard time finding an episode title because I've got like 20 of them already. <laughs> right now, I'm, I'm leaning towards uh, mellow and profitable. <laughs> so uh, now, how long do you think they're driving? Because uh, based on this next scene, I'm guessing a while. So the thing is, they make it up to Canada and back. <laughs> they do. They drive east for a while because they see the sun come up in the west. <laughs> So they drove the wrong way for a wrong way for a while. So it's been a few days, I would say. Oh yeah, because they are really tired, as we find out. So it's probably probably been maybe a couple of days. And they 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 get to the end of the song and they run into another billboard for Doc Hoppers, but this time it's got Kermit's face on it. That's a lawsuit waiting to happen. I was about to say, call your damn lawyer now. But uh, again, it's another scene of Doc wanting to get Kermit to be his spokesperson and Kermit still saying buzz off. So the, th- the the tack he takes here is just to be like, think about the good you'd be doing for all frogs, how you could be a role model. It's like, don't say he's going to be a credit to his race. Don't say he's going to be a credit to his race. Don't you do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, you know what? I have never thought about that angle, but it makes total sense. Kermit the Frog, symbol of Doc Hopper's French fried frog legs. Isn't that splendid? Just splendid. Just take a look at it. All I can see are millions of frogs on tiny crutches. Now listen, boy. Don't you want to be rich and famous? Not working for you, I don't. That's right. Crutches. Shut up, Max. We're a small-time operation, but we're expanding, expanding, just like you frogs expand. Don't you frogs expand? That's a myth. What? Myth, myth. Yes. Carol Kane shows up again because somebody somebody says the word myth. (laughs) I think that that's just the first name of the Ghost of Christmas Present. Like, that's... (laughs) Her name is Myth. This is her off-season. She's just living life. Yeah, I love I love the she's got the most absurd cameo because she shows up out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So they pull off they get away from Doc. They're they're not you know, they don't they don't want to deal with Doc. Fozzie's a little more on the fence just because Fozzie needs the cash. But while they're uh, driving on the road, they're really tired. They're looking at a map and they swerve off the road. They almost run into a church and they end up in a parking lot of a Presbyterian church in which they promptly fall asleep. Boy, it feels like we've been driving for days. Yeah. Funny. (laughs) I'm still wide awake. Yeah, me too. Me too. Wow, 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 wow,
they hear some music coming from the church and they wake up. So we're going to talk about what's inside of the church in a second, but we need to acknowledge the fact that this chirp, church is a fire trap. <laughs> it's it's really bad. Someone's going to die. It probably won't be animal. Oh, did you see the name of their reverend? Uh, Hare Krishna. Yeah, the, the, the sign that says, uh, says that you lost, try Reverend Hare Krishna. Is that the rule of three coming in? Is that the last time we hear it? That's, that's the third one. So they go in and they hear the, I'm, I'm going to mix up the quote, but the the amazing sounds of Dr. Teeth and the electric mayhem. They don't look like Presbyterians to me. They don't look like Presbyterians to me. And it's it's such a good they're they're playing a song. Did we have a name for that one? No, it's just they're just jamming. They're just yeah, they walk in on a jam session and it just it feels good to see Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem in their natural habitat, which is more likely to be a van than a Studebaker, but And then we also find out this is where we see Scooter. He's their manager. He's their road manager, which makes sense. If you had told me before the movie started that Scooter was going to be introduced alongside the Electric Mayhem, I wouldn't have believed you. He is an aspiring musician. Yeah, he is. And he's also, as Dr. Teeth points out, he's the man with the van. Which is important. Yeah, we're taking this old church and turning it into a coffee house. Yeah, with real good music and organic refreshments. Oh, it'll be so fine and laid back and mellow and profitable. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we get to meet. We got Floyd, Janice, Animal, Zoot, and uh, Dr. Teeth. Dr. Teeth actually is fairly prominent in in his sections. This is actually more personality we ever got out of Dr. Teeth. It's true. And Zoot's definitely on the back burner. Yeah, but he's got some funny jokes. <laughs> he's Dr. Teeth. Golden teeth and golden tones. Welcome to my presence. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Floyd. I blow bass. And I'm, uh, I'm Zoot. Sax is your axe. Uh-oh, Zoot skipped the groove again. Okay, so this is the part you, you said that you kind of, like, gave over to the whole conceit of the film, right? Yeah. So, there's... And this is something that I'd, I've run into as a problem with my writing, if there is, like, a, a reason for people to catch other people up on something. Kermit yeah. literally just hands him the script. He's like, I could explain it, but it's going to be quicker if you read it. Kermit here, he was living in the swamp, Fuzzy. and then a fisherman came along. Fozzie, you can't, you can't tell him the whole story. You'll bore the audience. Oh, sorry. But uh, Kermit, uh, the band here wants to know. Well, let him read the screenplay. Ah! I, I agree with that with writing, too. I always complain about that in screenplays. I already know this. Hmm. I don't care if the other character doesn't know this. I, as the reader or the viewer, already know this. Please don't bore me and tell it to me again. It's a weird balance to strike. Yes, exactly. This movie just throws the balance out of the window and says, screw it, here's a script. And I love it for that. Exterior Swamp Day. In a long helicopter shot, we discover Kermit the Frog playing his banjo and singing. A Hollywood agent starts the frog traveling west. Kermit and Fozzie uh, pass out. So this is something straight out of a fairy tale. Like this is, they go there, they fall asleep, they're magical benefactors, which in this case, rather than being a, a fairy godmother or a magical lion or something, happens to be a jam band. Throw something into the works, which works about as well as something that a jam band hatches up would work. Uh, <laughs> yeah like the entire time they're doing that kermit and Fozzie are sleeping inside of a building with a moving roof and it made me nervous this is a narrative of very heavy duty proportion ah, cosmic man yeah. he gotta keep his little froggy self away from this hopper dude too true 
Too true. It is indeed a problem for us to provosculate upon. But it seems to me that the frog and the bear are temporarily out of service. Oh, wow. Like, what can we do to help them? Well, if this were the movies... Which it is? We'd think of a clever plot device. Like disguising their car so they won't be recognized. Right. Two, three, four. Everybody's lover. Everybody's brother. I want to be your lifetime friend. Crazy as a rocket. Nothing in my pocket. I keep it in the rainbow's land. Can you picture that? Great song. Um, yeah. It's a nonsense song, but I like nonsense songs. It is, and it's also, like, it's not a it's not a P-Funk song, but it's as close as I think the Muppets have gotten to a P-Funk song. Yeah. I was just there for it. It's good. Yeah, and the, the plan is, as, as Floyd says, he's like, if this was a movie, and Dr. Teeth goes, and it is, <laughs> he goes, we would think of a clever plot device. <laughs> and um, their solution is... Why don't they disguise the car? If Doc's out there looking for a tan Studebaker, why don't they make it look different? And so we see them while they sing a song called Can You Picture That? They paint it psychedelic? Yeah, it's it's headed for Hate Street. It kind of brings in the rainbow theme a little bit. Um, and, and they paint it up all crazy and psychedelic with the song. Uh, when it's done, <laughs> Fozzie says, I don't know how to thank you guys. I don't know why to thank you guys. It's not Kermit's car. It's okay. <laughs> but then it leads to, I think, one of the classic jokes in the movie, which is they, they say goodbye to the mayhem. They can't come with them. But uh, they say goodbye to the mayhem. They get back on the street, and we cut to Doc and Max. I remember this frog does everything. He talks, he sings, he dances, he tells jokes. He even rides a bicycle. Max, find me a frog and a bear and a tan Studebaker. Gee, Doc, all I can see is a frog and a bear and a rainbow-colored Studebaker. What? And then there's a full beat. <laughs> Max has three brain cells. Two of them work very hard. And they're very, two of them are very humane and good. And then there's, you know, he's got like a dumb, greedy part of him too. So, uh, yeah, so they, so basically they're back on their trail again, but then they manage, then they, a joke that I'll say this, this joke where they pull in front of a billboard and they blend in to it with their rainbow car. I didn't even like it when I was a kid. Yeah, it's. It's one step too convenient for me. And I get that's the joke. It is. It also doesn't really work very for very long. Like, it's that car is more conspicuous than it was before they got to that church. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Well, they're going to get rid of it pretty soon. Yeah. No, the, let's be clear. The mayhem helped them zero here. They helped them out big time later. They, but when it comes to the car, they helped them out zero. They tried to help and they rolled a one. But they still thought they were helping. As Nick Jackson would say, they like the idea of helping. Fozzie and Kermit get away from Doc yet again. Who do we see on the road? We see... so The greatest of Gonzos. The greatest of Gonzos with what I'm guessing are the vestiges of his knight costume on the top of his car. <laughs> it, did, it did look like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And or Gonzos the Tin Weirdo, but... Yeah, you're right. It does look like his Black Knight costume on top of his plumbing truck. But he's great Gonzo. The plumbing. A pl he's a plumbing artiste. <laughs> the Prince of Plungers. I was so sure they were sliding stuff past the radar with all of those double entendres. <laughs> but I was like, they might. You go, Gonzo. I'm proud of you. Um, so we meet Gonzo, and he is in his plumbing truck. He's a plumber, and he is with his girlfriend, Camilla, uh, the chicken. Is this the first time she's been named? I think so. Oh, I tell you, Camilla, great plumbers are born, not made. I'm a Prince of Plunger, fair me. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
We'll do that. We'll just wait till we get there. Gonzo is a terrible driver. He's good at plumbing. At least He's... Kermit and Fozzie were like distracted because they were looking at a map. Gonzo's just driving on the wrong side of the road. Yeah. Although to be fair, one of those people should definitely have their eyes on the road. But how do they not die? Plot convenience. And or Gonzo has a very interesting way to balance his truck. Movie magic. Yeah, well, movie magic, but also if I'm looking at it in universe, I'm just like, I could absolutely see Gonzo being very meticulous about how he balances everything in that truck, because this probably right. isn't the first time this has happened if he's used to driving on the wrong side of the road. Basically, they're about to have a head on collision and Gonzo's truck ends up inverted upside down, inverted and upside down. Thank you. Good, good, good going. That was smart. On top of Fozzie's car in a preposterous configuration but gonzo and camilla climb down into the car and uh, we find out that uh, gonzo i want to go to bombay india and become a movie star <sighs> india is the fifth biggest film market in the world was it in the 70s that i don't know it'd be funnier to me if it wasn't and, it, and india just happened to become a huge film mecca because the joke doesn't play as well now because you're like nah india is a decent place to make movies <laughs> i'm just imagining gonzo with like the stubby legs Filling in without all that choreography. Oh, I totally want to see Gonzo in, in a Bollywood musical number. <laughs> so he decides he's going to come along with them now to go to Hollywood. Um, so we've now added Gonzo and Camilla to the merry cast of characters. We get another cameo. The one, the only, the Mr. Television. Uncle Milty. Uh, Milton Burl shows up. I think he's funny in this. He was great. Um, he's playing the, the archetypal crooked used car salesman. Kermit and the boys uh, want to trade in their two cars for one car. Um, one would argue they no longer have a car. And uh, yeah, uh, Milton Burr plays Madman Mooney, who runs a used car lot. My dear friends, welcome to Madman Mooney's Hubcap Heaven. Today, today is your lucky day. It is? Yes, it is. You, you for example, you're, you're driving the wrong car. I am. I can put you in this German street machine for only $2,000. Less a $12 trade-in on your old vehicle. Who uses a particular Muppet as a jack. Poor, poor Sweetums. Poor Sweetums. That's my jack. Oh, hi, Jack. Jack not name, Jack Jaw. <laughs> How many times have I told you not to talk to the customers? Yeah, oh, no. Just move this. Move it. You understand? So they're, they're negotiating the price of a car. that He's willing to give them $12 for their car. And there's a car that's marked it. Marked it $1,195 and a fly is buzzing around and Sweetums punches the fly. So it makes a, a decimal point and they buy that car for like what? 12 bucks. Uh, we'll take that one for $11 and 95 cents. That's our $12 trade in. You owe us a nickel. And then they, they let Sweetums know that they're willing to go and Sweetums, the great communicator runs away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So he can get his back. He just runs away. He's the, he's the first of two people that actually do that in the movie. Where someone goes, hey, you want to go to Hollywood? He goes, Hollywood, and runs away. <laughs> but as as they pull off in their new style and station wagon, we Sweetums runs out with his suitcase. And he's like, hey, hey where are you going? Hey, wait for me. I want to go to Hollywood. So the next section has to happen, right? I understand fully that it has to happen. Like I said, I went on road trips as a small child, and my dad, being who he was, would have us leave at four in the morning because he hated traffic. And we were also one of those families that didn't really stop outside of, like, the prescribed stops at certain times per day to either get gas or stop for the night. So the detour onto a carnival ground just makes me antsy. 
It's just a county fair. That makes it better. It's the Bogan County Fair. Bogan County, I don't believe exists, by the way. I googled Bogan County and it gave me the Wikipedia for the Muppet movie. The fair is holding a beauty contest. Now, we don't see them come to the fair. They're just there. I guess, like you said, they were just driving and they go, hey, there's a fair. Let's stop by and get some funnel cake or something, I guess. That does sound nice. The MC of the beauty contest is played by Mr. Elliot Gould. Well, it's time to announce the winner of this year's Bogan County beauty pageant. Pretty around here, don't we? All right, here they are. The What's over there, Kermit? Over is there. Debbie Sue Anderson. Long before he was Ross and Monica's dad on Friends, Elliot Gould was a 70s leading man, especially his movies with Robert Altman. Um, people will know him from movies like MASH and Nashville, Bob Carroll, Ted Nallis, Little Murders, The Ocean's Eleven remakes. Um, and yes, he was Monica and Ross's dad on Friends. So Ellie Gould is the MC, and and the judge. Uh, did you see who the judge was? They were one Edgar Bergen and one Charlie McCarthy. Yeah, or the judges for the contest from uh, Muppet Show episode two hundred seven. The final filmed appearance of Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Uh, he would die later that year, and he, he was sick when they shot it. And the movie, of course, is dedicated in his to his memory at the end. Even though he had been on the Muppet Show already, apparently when on the set of the Muppet movie, they were still like all the guys were still completely like almost paralyzed by working with uh, with Edgar Bergen, that he was just such a huge, huge figure to them. I think we should thank the judges of today's contest, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. You're not going to believe who the winner is, folks. Oh, come now, Charlie. It's their movie. Who's the winner? Uh, the one, the only, Miss Piggy Lee. Yeah, I know. <laughs> of course. And uh, Piggy comes out, and she's you know looking great. And she's uh, and, and at this point, Kermit, Gonzo, Fozzie, and Camilla are in the crowd. And um, they're watching the end of the beauty contest. And Piggy comes out. She gets her tiara, and she's very magnanimous to her fellow contestants, you know? Then... They lock eyes. So on a meta level, I can absolutely imagine Kermit having a different pitch for how he meets Miss Piggy. The way that their relationship develops in this movie runs counter to a lot of the other stuff we would have seen up to this point. That's fine. It's it's a movie. It's scripted. It's an interior movie. It's scripted. But... This feels like the temptation sketch a little bit, maybe <laughs> okay. a little bit less one-sided. Yeah. I mean, I think they make it clear in the movie. And we have to be very clear that this is in the movie. Mm-hmm. They make it very clear in the movie that it's love at first sight for both of them. That, that we go into Piggy's fantasy, <laughs> but he is, he is dumbstruck by seeing her as much as she is dumbstruck by seeing him. Then we get a great zoom. It's great 70s zoom shot from Piggy's point of view right in a Kermit's face. And we hear the song never before. Never before have two souls joined so freely and so fast. For me, this is the first time and the last. Is this an angel's wish for men? Never before and never again. 
This is probably the least popular song from the movie. It is eclipsed by the other ones. But I think it serves a purpose, though. I defend this song because I think the whole point of this song is obviously the contrast to the imagery. So it doesn't make the song as much fun to, like, play in the car on a road trip. Mm. But in the movie, it's playing against all this great imagery, and that's kind of the whole point of it being this kind of over-the-top love song. to each other across a field in slow motion. They go on a romantic rowboat ride. Piggy sits on a waterfall while Kermit goes swimming. They meet under a street light like they're in a Humphrey Bogart movie. Actually, in the script, <laughs> in the script, <laughs> um, Kermit lights a cigarette for her in that moment. <laughs> I guess they dodge that one. And they end up basically like rolling around like under a tree on the ground. Yeah, in another case, they would have panned over to a fireplace. <laughs> exactly, or a train or something. <laughs> a train. Um, and then at the end, they get married and drive off in an open-top car. And we realize that this has all been Piggy's fantasy that she's seen when she sees Kermit. But she's been doing something else during the fantasy. Closing distance. <laughs> because closing temptation. Distance. Yeah. Um, because when the song is over, Piggy is holding on to Kermit. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Oh, yeah. uh, yes, of course. Uh, listen, uh, congratulations on winning the beauty contest. Thank you. Of course, normally I don't uh, do anything so trivial. I am an actress model. Oh, is that right? Well, uh, oh, I, I'm going to be a performer, too. Ooh. Hey, Kermit, who's a cute-looking pig? I beg your pardon. Fozzie and Gonzo are like, we're 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 out of here. Um, we don't have anything to do with this. Fozzie goes to buy some ice cream, and the ice cream vendor is played by none other than our friend Bob Hope, the busiest man alive. The busiest man alive. He keeps many jobs. Hello, I'd like an ice cream. Uh, what do you want? Chocolate, vanilla, coffee, peach fudge, rum, banana, honey, honey. I beg your pardon. I hardly know you. Ah. But seriously, funnier than he was on the show. Yeah, no, that's that's true. But he's also more. And present. he's not even super funny. He's got less screen time, but he's more present. Bob Hope sells some ice cream to Fozzie. He sells a, a cone of a honey uh, of honey, uh, which I don't think honey ice cream exists. It does. It might. It, it, might. it does. It does. OK, does Dragonfly Ripple exist? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there was something that was, because there's like a grasshopper ice cream, but it's not actual grasshoppers. It's not actual grasshopper. I'm sure Kermit was very disappointed the first time he had grasshopper ice cream. <laughs> like, what is this mint shit? One honeycomb for the bear and one dragonfly ripple for the frog. Yucca. Don't get them mixed up. Gotcha. All right. Nick, tell me about this next scene. I bet this was made you happy. It did, but I wanted so much more. I know. I know. Gonzo, who is also on his own romantic interlude, because he's got to keep that relationship fresh, regardless of the life expectancy of a chicken. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that's so f***ing, that's so f***ing bleak. Sorry. No, I didn't think, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that. So. What lives longer, a pig? Don't pigs live longer than frogs? 
Probably. But, I mean, to be fair, that happens with Piggy and Kermit in either case, because he's going to sustain some injuries. Because pigs can live to be like dog ages, I think. I think so, yeah. They're basically just hairless dogs. Gonzo is out with Camila, and he decides that it might be nice to get her some balloons, which yeah, is when... it'd be sweet. Sorry? It'd be sweet. It'd be sure. sweet, yeah. Yeah. Which is when we run into one of my personal problematic faves, one Mr. Richard Pryor. Yeah. Who is doing the utmost that one can do as a balloon seller. All right, all right, Camilla, I'll get you a balloon, but you have to pick the color. Red or green? Can I give you a word of advice? What? Why not take both? <gasps> what a wild idea! Yeah, a beautiful chicken like that deserves two balloons. <laughs> You're right. He's He's hustling. Oh, yeah. But he also, he wants to help a guy out. You know, it's clear that Gonzo's a weirdo, and he needs all the help he can get. Yeah, but he's already got Camilla eating out of his hand. This is, this scene and the following scene makes me realize who I feel like should have been in this movie and wasn't. Okay. Because Gonzo gets the balloons. He gets all of the balloons, because... I have guys come in all the time. Sometimes they get a bunch of balloons for the girls. They go gaga for it. Gaga? I'll take the whole bunch. Real quick, before you start, should we tell people who Richard Pryor is? Oh, yeah. Sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. They know. Um, uh, He's Richard Pryor. He's the greatest stand-up comedian of all time. He was going to host Muppet Show episode 519, but tragically, uh, that won't happen. Um, This was after Silver Streak, after Car Wash, after Blue Collar, and just the year before uh, he had been in uh, your favorite movie of all time, apparently, The Wiz. It's not my favorite movie, but it's an early imprint. (laughs) And Gonzo takes the balloons, but Gonzo, as we've established, is a tiny Muppet. (laughs) He is tiny. And he may or may not have hollow bones, which is why when he takes a hold of those balloons, he goes straight up. He is kind of like a turkey, but not much. And we get a shot that is straight out of the end of Willy Wonka. Like, Gonzo is in that class elevator, and it just made me wish that I could have seen Gene Wilder in here somewhere. Gene Wilder would have been great. Oh, yeah. Wherever they put him. So Kermit tells Piggy after the guys go get ice cream. He's like, uh, yeah, we're going west. And she goes, oh, you're going. Wow. And he goes, um, so uh, my friends are getting ice cream. Do you want to come? The thing about the dynamic in this movie between Kermit and Piggy that gave me a little bit of pause. Right. Because we see that that initial just sort of, I don't know how I feel about this from Kermit. And right. Piggy, on the other hand, is... Full speed ahead. Piggy is full speed ahead, and Kermit's a little more reserved. But I think they established that he's into it. He does invite her to come get ice cream with his friends. He's just not to the point of, come move with me to Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) He might have skipped a few levels. You know, he's not ready to give her her own drawer. Like, we're not there yet. She's already, you know, they've she's already naming their children. So after Gonzo buys Camilla all the balloons in the world, Piggy runs back to Kermit and says, I'm ready to go. He's like, what, 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 huh? You said I could come with you. Yeah, but to buy ice cream, not to Hollywood. We're going to Hollywood? <laughs> no, I, I mean, listen, when I, when I said, I mean, well, when you heard that. And now Piggy is going to be on for the ride. So we'll, we'll get to this in a minute. There are a couple of choices that are made regarding Piggy being on the ride, which I don't know why they were made. Right. But before we get to that. 
Gonzo goes flying. Gonzo goes flying. <laughs> and everyone goes to save Gonzo because... Including Piggy. That's the important part. Before Kermit can kind of really explain to Piggy that he that she misunderstood him, there's an emergency. Yeah. Right? And they all hop in the car. I actually think that's smart writing. Oh, yeah. That was, that was a nice touch. And because bad has to go to worse, as they're chasing Gonzo, they're being chased by Doc Hopper. Now, here's the thing about Doc Hopper... If you want someone to dance for you, let's let's go like full old mob rules, right? If you want someone to dance for you, maybe you don't shoot at them indiscriminately. Like maybe you want them to be able. <laughs> he was going to shoot the tires. He, That's what he told Max. He didn't have a precision instrument and he wasn't. He was firing a shotgun. <laughs> yeah. Like unless Doc is a ridiculous shot, I, I have questions and concerns. You know, I mean, Doc did say earlier that he was done playing nice, you know? Okay, but if Kermit can't, is Kermit going to represent the things in a wheelchair? We get an amazing comedic sequence of the gang in Fozzie in there in the station wagon trying to track down Gonzo as he floats. You get what feels like, I'm sure it's not, but what feels like maybe the greatest improvised joke of all time. Fozzie, yes. Uh, Bear left. What? Bear left. Right frog. What? Never mind. That's cute. I loved that so much. (laughs) Oh, that's Jim and Frank. That is absolutely Jim and Frank. Bear left, right frog. That's also a possible title for the episode. <laughs> and uh, and and yeah, and Doc starts shooting, and and Doc ends up shooting uh, Gonzo's balloons as he as as they get knocked down by a giant cream pie. Yeah, that like everything about that was it's it's a fever dream. Like the I think there was a magnet on top of the car because there's like a, a sticking to the roof for Gonzo, and then we take like an, a weird. Weird diversion into a long tangent because it's a love story. Oh, the date. Oh, I love the date. I I, I love in the car, though, when Piggy's like, maybe we should stop and have a nice dinner for two. And Gonzo's like, that's great. I'll have dinner with you, Miss Piggy. (laughs) Gonzo. I love Gonzo so much in those moments where he just doesn't read the room. And like, there are no teeth behind it. There's no. No. Oh, it's so good. Camilla, by the way, is a very understanding girlfriend. They we don't know what arrangement they have. That's fair. Um, Oh, yeah. I love the date. This whole part of the movie is just great. I legit thought the dinner was another one of Miss Piggy's fantasies. Oh, did you? Like, the way that it set up, the soft lighting, all that other stuff, I'm like, oh, this is just Piggy taking a little bit more. Okay, and then Kermit's there, and Kermit's into it. And because this is a fever dream, and that's my mental state as I'm watching it, when Kermit says, Miss Piggy, the moon doesn't look like you, because everybody loves smooth K. Yeah, ladies love cool K. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought about Eraserhead and the woman in the radiator, and it just, it didn't take me out of it. It just became part of, like, that that general sort of... <laughs> you get to Eraserhead. It's this sweet little scene. How do you get to Eraserhead? I don't know. <laughs> I am imagining what a David Lynch Muppet movie would look like. Oh, that's upsetting. <laughs> so we get, a, we get a cameo by Mr. Steve Martin as the waiter. Oh, waiter? Yes? May I help you? Uh, uh, the, uh, the wine, please. Oh, you mad impetuous think it's champagne. Not exactly. Sparkling Muscatel, one of the finest wines of Idaho. Just bringing it. Oh, yeah, he's great. He's so good. <laughs> Just bringing it. He's much better here than he was in this episode. My, uh, my daughters laughed at his shorts, the fact that he's wearing shorts, which is, does seem ridiculous. Kermit has already, he's already ordered a bottle of wine. The finest wine in all of Idaho. <laughs> Costs 95 cents. 
<laughs> so there's a whole sequence. Everyone's seen it probably, but there's a whole sequence of Steve Martin basically playing sommelier to Kermit and Piggy for this cheap-ass bottle of wine that Kermit bought. Don't you want to smell the bottle cap? Oh, Mm-hmm. Smells good. Mm, yes. Would you like to taste it first? Well, uh... I think he's supposed to. Uh, uh, would you taste it for us, please? Excellent choice. Should be for 95 cents. But then at the end, they go, can we have straws? He's like, yeah, I predicted that. Like, as soon as I saw you guys, I knew you'd want straws. And then you're right. And then they do the thing where they drink. And it's very, very much like when Kermit was drinking um, in uh, like the pilot or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. It was one of the first two episodes. Um, But you notice, though, but Piggy downs it like Piggy's ready to get blitzed and have some fun tonight. Let's let's be perfectly clear. Piggy's virtue is intemperance. That's true. It's not. But I think she's getting I think she's getting sauced up for a good for a good time. Yeah, I think she's having fun. And then we get something that we, ne- we nearly get something that people have wanted forever or maybe not. But we nearly get a kiss like a real like now we don't get it because I don't think they could figure out how to do it. But, um, <laughs> like not the characters, the, the, the puppeteers, but uh, Kermit and Piggy almost kiss. And then Steve Martin with an amazing line comes in and says, Miss Piggy, are you Miss Piggy? Yes. Telephone. He doesn't want to assume. You only make that mistake once. And Piggy reveals that she has put in a call to her agent just to check in. And that that's probably her agent. And she leaves to uh, go get the call, much to Kermit's kind of consternation. That he would, she would just leave right as their date was about to get amorous. Kermit was feeling kind of froggy. Fro- I mean, he was going to Corton, you yeah. know. And then Piggy doesn't come back. The moon rises a little bit more. We've we've talked about the passage of time in here. Are Are the rest of them just sort of like... At a Burger King down the street, just... (laughs) I don't know where the rest of them are. They're probably sleeping in the car. (laughs) Like, they don't have money for a hotel. That's a very good point. Where are the rest of them? (laughs) Like, I just imagine they're sleeping in the station wagon. Uh Like, in the parking lot. So then uh, Kermit eventually gives up on Piggy coming back. He's dejected. He's feeling bad. Who do we finally see? The one, the only, Rolf the dog. And we get Jim Henson singing a duet with himself. You know, that's that's kind of on brand, though, because when our Muppets have woman problems, they, they usually go to themselves to figure it out. Broken heart, right? Was it, Cheryl? Listen, when you've been tickling the ivories as long as I have, you've seen a broken heart for every drop of rain, a shattered dream for every fallen star. Exactly. She just walked out on me. Yeah, typical. That's why I live alone. You do, huh? You bet. I finish work, I go home, read a book, have a couple of beers, take myself for a walk and go to bed. I love this song. It's so great. Rolf is the perfect, like, salty older guy. He's like, yeah, I don't need women. They just (laughs) hurt you and leave. Actually, I wrote down, is this scene Fight Club? Because it's, (laughs) it's two guys who are actually the same person, but acting like different people talking about how they don't need women anymore. There's like a scene in Fight Club that like is just exactly that. Rolf is absolutely Tyler. But they sing a song called I Hope That Something Better Comes Along. You can't live with them. You can't live without them. 
There's something irresistible-ish about them We grin and bear it cause the nights are long I hope that something better comes along It's about women and the, how great they are and what a pain in the ass they are at the same time. I was looking for a picture of Lassie in the background somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I like that. I like to think that Lassie's the one that broke his heart. That that's why he's he's sour. But I love the line where he's like, "This, I mean, this is how like you could never do this in like a quote unquote kids movie today." Where this movie was rated G when it came out. Where Rolf's like, "Read a book, have a couple of beers." <laughs> <laughs> like, but, but mention, but he is Rolf's just a blue collar guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Plays the piano, goes home. This is this is fun. Like this, everything about this interaction was a lot of fun. Two, three, four. There's no limitation to mixing and matching. Some get an itching for a critter they've been scratching. A skunk was badgered. The results were strong. I hope that something better. The song's got an extra verse that's like on the CD. Uh, on the CD. It's on the sound. There's an extra verse that's on the soundtrack. And it's also on the, there was a European video release of the movie that's like a few minutes longer. And it's got like an extra verse in the middle. Oh, but what could be better than a saucy Irish setter? When puppy love comes on strong. Or a collie that's classy. All that he needs a lassie. A lover and wife gives you a new leash on life. Was that a new leash on life? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry about that. Two, three, four. And then Steve Martin comes back in and says, message for Kermit the Frog. Are you Kermit the Frog? Again, pretty obvious. He brings Kermit over to the phone and Piggy, and it's Doc Hopper on the other line. And, and it turns out that Piggy has been kidnapped. She did not dump Kermit. She did not run out on him yet. But she's been kidnapped by Doc Hopper. He comes outside. Kermit comes outside like Doc tells him, and he is greeted by like eight shotguns in a kid's movie. So let's talk about how the shotgun is Doc Hopper's weapon of choice, because that says <laughs> something about his character, given that he is not a very precise man. He can be a very focused man. I think that's a country thing, too, though, right? Probably. So Doc now has Kermit and Piggy in custody. He's got them tied up somewhere. I don't know where they are. <laughs> like some kind of warehouse or basement somewhere. or something. Yeah, like a barn. They're in a silo or something. This scene is nightmare fuel, but not for the reason that they probably intended it to be. You're going to mention the eyes, aren't you? Oh, God, yes. But before we get to the eyes, (laughs) but I knew you were going to mention the eyes. That's why I made sure to put them in the breakdown. Thank you. I I get to look at them for so much longer. Doc has has gone to some drastic measures and he's brought in a professional. He's brought in a professional in frog reprogramming, basically. It's a very, very niche field. Professor Crassman. Played by um, the one, the only, the only Mel Brooks. <laughs> How are uh, you, Professor Craftsman? It's good to see you, Doc. You little rustic devil, you. Where's my victim? I mean, patient. Step this way, of Professor. Course. Let me introduce you to your patient. Professor Craftsman is the world's leading authority on mind control in frogs. It's a very rapidly growing field. So Mel Brooks comes in. Um, listen, if you listen to this show, you know we like Mel Brooks. So much. Um, but uh, despite the fact that Nick has never seen Young Frankenstein and that I will continue to hound him about that. But Fair. this appearance would come between his films High Anxiety and right before History of the World Part 1. I read this scene in the script. 
everything on the script in the script, Mel Brooks says like word for word, pretty much. However, none of this is on the page. <laughs> none of the perf- he adds things. Yes. Like the line about piggy eating garlic, like it's totally an ad lib. He comes in not as some mild mannered doctor like the script has him. He comes in as a Nazi war criminal doctor. The first thing he does is click his heels and goose step. <laughs> and he comes in and he's doing this over the top accent, German accent, and he is playing a Nazi doctor. He's kind of playing Dr. Strangelove almost. Named Professor Craftsman, which is the yes. perfect name for Mel Brooks. But the thing is, that's his name in the script, but there's no like ethnicity linked to him <laughs> or anything. Like that's just his name in the script. Who else would they have gotten to play this character though? So they have this machine that's going to do an, an electric cerebrectomy, which I do not believe is a real thing. Cerebrectomy, cerebrectomy, electronic cerebrectomy. Mm. What does it do? What does it do? What does it do? It turns the brains into guacamole. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the plan, I guess. Let me, let me see if this makes sense to you. The plan is to basically lobotomize Kermit so that they can just prop him up and use him as their spokesperson. He's brought in this machine that's like, it looks like an electric chair, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of grim. And he's going to put this little skull cap thing on the froggers. He calls it the electric yarmulke. It's the uh, the clockwork orange sort of. Although without the eye thing, because Kermit's eyes are always open anyway. Kermit never blinks. How dry are his eyes? He's a frog. He gets the moisture from elsewhere. So he's going to fry his, he's going to fry Kermit's brain. He puts him in a thing. It's kind of scary. Like Piggy, I love how Piggy though keeps looking over to Kermit. Like, I know you've got this under control. Kermit's like, first of all, I'll pull out of this. Okay. Wonderful. (laughs) Second. And then Kermit's like, all right, part one of the plan. I get out of these, I get out of these, uh, this rope. And you're like, there's no way in hell. We know of those skinny little arms. No way. He's going to bust out of he there. Could, he might be able to squeeze out, but there's a non-zero chance that Piggy thinks this is just part of the date. She's like, I'm absolutely game. I've had my <laughs> 95 cent wine. And you know what? We can do some role play. Is this an escape room? I heard about those. But then it looks like Mel Brooks is really going to throw the switch and fry Kermit's brain. Say goodbye to the frog, pig. Why should I? Because in 10 seconds, he won't know you. From kosher bacon. That does it! And then Piggy kicks the shit out of everybody. So let's talk about this in the context of <laughs> one, those those crazy, crazy eyes and the fact that they're Her sort of peering into your soul. Crazy. And they don't like they just stay there. And full body piggy throwing herself from the rafters. Oh, she comes down on him and beating the shit out of everyone. (laughs) And just like with, with a Chucky sort of, if she was setting traps and like killing people with that, it would absolutely be a child's play movie. But instead it's just miss piggy. She, she hits Mel Brooks with a flying kick. She, she, she high yaws like all the other fools and these guys are armed oh yeah but they know it's up like it's there's that boondocks clip about uh can she run really fast in high heels which admittedly has a different context but i was just thinking about it here because i'm like miss piggy she was never stuck in a room with them well i mean and that's the thing Lou. you're coming to the muppet movie like you still want to see the muppets and one of the things you want to see miss piggy do is kick someone's ass oh yeah no she's she's there to hurt someone yeah 
Well, she, you know what, though? This is self-defense. It is. I'm, I'm mostly talking about how she's going to hurt Kermit. But So after this amazing sequence and, and she ends up, the doc ends up getting his own cerebrectomy at the end and turned into a frog. That part doesn't make sense at all. But um, he's I mean, he's specialized in frogs, so it kind of does, but it's a stretch. And Mel chewed the scenery every second he was there. He's great in it. Like I said, I highly recommend going on Muppet Wiki. They have a they have the script on there mm. on Muppet Wiki, like a page at a time. Find this scene and just read how like it's fine on the page, but it's nothing close to this. <laughs> Even though it's the same scene. You just injected Dr. Strangelove into it. Then the phone in the barn rings. <laughs> I don't know why there's a phone in the barn. Sometimes you got to take a call. This is pre-cell phone. And Kermit picks it up and says, oh, Piggy, it's your agent. And then she has a great scene. <laughs> yeah, Marty, what do you got? Commercial? How much? Mm-hmm. When? Take it. And she takes this like business call. Now in the script, the agent is named Bernie. <laughs> they could have kept that and then Don, just be a joke that one, it's a Bernie Brillstein joke, but also two, it could be a joke that Dom DeLuise is our agent. That would have been better for them to keep in for continuity. I think that would have elevated it a lot. Piggy basically takes a job. <laughs> so that's, that's something that pulls me out just a little bit because I yeah. don't understand what the purpose of that particular development is outside of. I, uh, yeah. Maybe souring well, her relationship with Kermit. Especially with what comes next and how quickly she rejoins them. Yeah. I agree. Uh, I think it's a little sloppy. I think the joke here is that we we thought this had already happened, mm-hmm. right? Like, like Kermit thought that Piggy had gotten a call from her agent and bailed on him. And then it turns out that she was kidnapped. And that's not what happened at all. And then we get to the end of the kidnapping scene and she takes a call and bails on him. <laughs> and I, th- I think that's the idea. I, I don't think that landed, but if that is the intent, that is a funny turnaround. I don't think it's effective mostly because she's going to be back in the movie in like two minutes. Yeah. If she was actually gone for a significant amount of time, I think it would work a lot better. So she leaves and Kermit's looking real sad. And then the film breaks and the celluloid starts to bubble and melt. And we are back in the screening room. This is very hard to describe to five year old and eight year to a five year old and an eight year old in 2021 about like what that meant, that the idea that the film broke. It was it's I mean, I didn't even they didn't even they had no idea what was going on and I didn't even try to explain it. But, but it's a good time to take a little break and um, uh, get into the uh, back into the screening room where, you know, everybody's kind of being a dick about the, the movie, uh, except for Robin. Well, how do you like the film? I've seen detergents that leave a better film than this. Oh. <laughs> well, I don't care what anybody else says. I'm having a great time. Oh, good. The Swedish chef is working as hard as he can. I love that the chef is the projectionist. They cape this, too, because in Muppet, the Muppet, uh, Muppet, Muppet Vision 3D at Disneyland, mm. the chef is also the projectionist in that, too. And then the chef has the great line, of course. The flame is okie-dokie. Good. Roll film. Flame is rolling. So the chef gets the film back together and I also, uh, you know, just, I want to just the, the bit of foreshadowing that we get in the scene. It's a throwaway thing, but animals, big part is coming up. Don't worry, animal. Your big scene is coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Just be cool and eat another seat cushion. So then the chef rolls the film and we open up <laughs> on uh, Mount Rushmore with Fozzie bear singing America, the beautiful patriotic part. 
Should we stand up? Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain. Over a montage of American landmarks. And then uh, we cut into the station wagon while Fozzie is still singing America, America the Beautiful. Uh, Rolf has joined them now, so now Rolf is part of their group. Piggy's gone, but Rolf is there. And uh, Kermit's kind of looking bummed. And uh, yeah, there's this very strange uh, <laughs> patriotic montage. On one hand, it seems like it was trying to do what Moving Right Along did, but also in a more jingoistic fashion. Yeah, I think it's just a joke. Mm. I don't think there's much more to it. Than Maybe that, there was like a commercial on TV at the time they were parodying. And it gets it, it gets to the line, though. Patriotism swells in the heart of the American bear. So here's the biggest the scene I have the biggest problem with. We, we cut to a surly gang of dudes taking firing practice at a cardboard standee of Kermit. Did you notice that Max is holding the standee? Yeah, Max. He's the beaker. He's not Scooter. He's beaker. He's a little bit of both. Yeah. And they're training to kill Kermit. Okay. And then Doc arrives and he introduces Snake Walker, who's a guy that wears like he looks he, he actually kind of dresses like Marlon Brando in the island of Dr. Mar- in the island of Dr. Moreau. He does. But um <laughs> right? Like the hat. He does. But he's like dressed in all black and he's got a harpoon gun and he's a professional frog killer and he shows off his skills. Tell him what you do, Snake. Kill frogs. Here's the problem. This doesn't pay off at all. It doesn't, but it's also It's completely superfluous. Revisiting the scene, because it's a weird sort of aside, but also Doc Hopper's kind of an incel. Like, if you think about it, this is him going to an internet forum and being like, this frog won't give me the time of day, and I've been very nice to the frog. (laughs) All I want the frog to do is debase himself for my benefit, and I have been very nice. I even shot at the balloons that were keeping his friend up and keeping him from getting on the car. I put I put his face all over billboards. How how nice can I be? I guess since I was nice already, I should do the other thing. Why doesn't he love me? <laughs> I just have a problem with they have this scene. This guy comes in. I kill frogs, but it amounts to nothing. It does. It's he never has another line of dialogue. He doesn't have a scene. There's no scene where he's trying to kill the frog. Because normally at this point, you introduce a character like this and you're waiting for like, oh, they've introduced the pro. Yeah. Right. They've introduced like, you know, some kind of heavy. I mean, that's what the scene is. Yeah. The specialist to take him down. And that's what this is. It's just it doesn't they don't do anything with it. I would be fine with that. But like it's the scene adds nothing else. The scene isn't funny. It isn't clever. It is simply a plot scene. So if you're going to put me through a, a plot scene, then that better be part of the plot. But we have an entire scene that's like setting up this guy that doesn't pay off. If there was something hysterical in the scene, keep it. I can see that. But there isn't. I think part of this is that suspension of disbelief that came with the fever dream thing, because I'm not looking for payoffs and setups in the same way that I would outside of that context. I've just seen this movie so many times. Mm. And Snake just always feels like a waste of time. Kill frogs. So after that, we get a very weird moment where Piggy all of a sudden is back in the story. And Kermit, to his credit, is just like, I see you sitting there playing your mind games. I don't want it. But none of the other guys want her in the car either. They find her hitchhiking on the side of the road. And uh, there's a moment where it was this guy, uh, Rolf, because Rolf's in the car now. Rolf says, uh, should we help with their bags? And both Gonzo and Fozzie are like, nah. We've all been there, though. We've all been there when one of our friends is going back to the same woman or just sort of like, I mean, I can't stop you from doing this, but... I'm going to tell you how to live your life, but... I don't have to be nice. Like, I don't have to be mean, but I'm not rolling out a carpet for her. We know what happens when you do this. It's weird that more things don't happen in between Piggy leaving and Piggy coming back. It's literally one scene. 
There's no narrative reason to have her leave. Internally or externally, I can't find out what purpose it's supposed to serve. And that bothers me more than the one-off scene with Snake, because that's, it is a, a movie of like, for, I, it feels wrong to call it a movie full of vignettes, but it kind of is. There's beat, 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 beat. But this is a character that we do see more than once. This is one of the, if not the big Muppet star. No, I, I agree. I think it's, an, I think it's awkward at the very least. It's just an awkward handling of the story. I do think that joke is there, but I think maybe it's it's not necessary, um, especially since it doesn't land very well. And I think that if Piggy had just stayed with them, we would not have like all it gets you is a, a scene where Kermit's a little standoffish with her. Kermit. Mm. I missed you. Mm. Don't I get one kissy kissy? Uh, no, I, I don't think so, Miss Piggy. Oh, just one little hug. Mm. Oh, Piggy. But uh, eventually Piggy gets back in the car and, she, you know, she tries to get a kiss from Kermit. And he's not having it. She gets a hug. And then Doc Hopper comes on the radio and he says, you've been listening to Music to Hug Frogs by. <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> and uh, he says he's going to turn him into a frog burger if he doesn't uh, turn himself over. Again, he keeps acting like he's a cop. He's also diversifying it a little bit because it's not just frog legs anymore. It's the full frog. Yeah. Frog burger. Yeah. Um, and then of course the station wagons engine like explodes, <laughs> which, you know, cause they did buy it for 20 bucks. They did buy it for like $11 and 95 cents. Right. And they got more than they paid for, but also less than he yeah. wanted them to. So they end up getting stuck in the middle of the desert and uh, no one comes along to help them. And soon it turns to nighttime. They leave this, they leave the car on the side of the road and they make camp. They kind of sit around. This is where, you know, this is all sad. This is where it gets a little sad and Toy Story-ish, Toy Story-ish almost, you know, mm. um, where they're lamenting the fact that yeah, they're just not going to make it, not going to live, you know, auditions are tomorrow. They're not going to get there. And this is this is something you'll find in other Muppet stuff, too, is everyone turning their eyes to Kermit and him not 100% being comfortable being the leader, mm. him not wanting to be responsible for other people's dreams. I think that's Henson, too. Henson didn't want to be seen as a father figure by the employees at the Muppet show, but he was, you know, there was a lot of pressure on him too. Cause he had to split time between New York and, uh, England as well. And England and not to mention his real family <laughs> that he, you know, his, his many children and his wife, you know? So like Kermit being completely capable of bearing the load and most of the time wanting to bear the load, but having moments where it's just too much. Or moments where you're like, listen, guys, I didn't, you know, as he says, I didn't promise you guys anything. And he's really kind of down in the dumps. And then everyone kind of falls silent because if Kermit doesn't have the answer, they're screwed. Right. Is according to them. Right. He's always he's the one with the answers. And um, then Gonzo sings my favorite song in the movie. This looks familiar. Vaguely familiar, almost unreal yet. It's too soon to feel yet close to my soul and yet so far away. I'm going to go back there someday. I don't have any really jokes here. <laughs> 
just kind of a sincere rendering of a heartbreaking song, I think, right? I think the thing about Gonzo and heartbreaking is we never get despair. Oh, no. Yeah. We can get melancholy. We can get uh, a sense of feeling forlorn. But you're never going to get, or at least in what I've seen, you never get full despair from Gonzo. That, I don't think despair is something that the Muppets ever really <laughs> portray, you know? Uh, no, I can think of one time. But um, but no, you're right. What did you think of the song? I thought it was nice. I thought, I, I like, I don't know the name for the songwriting technique, but that's sort of inverted imagery that you'll get out of a lot of things. I think it's it's a very poignant song. It it could very easily slide into being something overwrought, and it doesn't. It hits exactly the right balance that it's supposed to. Gonzo being my favorite character, and then this being, I think, one of Dave Gold's shining moments as a performer. Because um, it's not just the song, it's also the performance. I think it's one of the reasons, and we've talked about this, one of the reasons why we're why we love Gonzo so much is that Dave Gold's is growing into the role when when the Muppet show started he was by far the least experienced puppeteer there's not a word yet for old friends who've just met part heaven part space or have I found my place you can just visit but I plan to stay I'm going to go back there someday. I'm going to go back there someday. But before the song is over, Kermit wanders off into the desert like Christ. <laughs> I mean, kind of. I don't know. I, I never I didn't get they that probably weren't invoking that, but. I didn't get that far in the Bible, but I've seen a lot of movies about Jesus. <laughs> I've seen Last Temptation of Christ. That's about it. So Kermit walks off into the desert and has a conversation with himself, which is kind of a surreal moment that always like tripped me out as a kid. You know, I got a lady pig and a bear and a chicken, a dog, a thing, whatever Gonzo is. He's a little like a turkey. Yeah, a little like a turkey, but not much. No, I guess not. Anyhow, I brought them all out here into the middle of nowhere. It's all my fault. Still, whether you promised them something or not, you got to remember they wanted to come. But that's because they believed in me. No, they believed in the dream. Well, so do I, but... You do? Yeah, of course I do. Well then, well then, I guess I was wrong when I said I never promised anyone. I promised me. Inside of everyone, there are two Kermits. And the one that you feed is the one that grows. Kermit has a little chat with himself about the fact that he didn't promise them to go to Hollywood, but he promised himself. It's not that he's let everybody else down, it's he's let himself down. They also conclude that Gonzo looks kind of like a turkey, but not much. There are a lot of things that go into making a Skeksis. Do you think he looks like a turkey? Uh, no, I think turkeys are significantly yeah. more terrifying than Gonzo is because they're stout. But Kermit's coming back to camp and he hears music. Who are our saviors, but none other than Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. What, what's happening? At the moment, we're what's happening. Oh, great, wonderful, yeah. Zoot, hey, zoot. Hold it, hold it. Uh, animal, cool it back there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah. 
Hey, listen, it's, it's wonderful to see you guys, but how did you ever find us? Oh, easy. We just read the screenplay you left us. How did they find them in the middle of the desert? Uh, you might say that it was foretold by a screenplay. <laughs> they left the script with them. <laughs> Exterior desert night. We knew exactly where right. to find you. And you mentioned this at the beginning. They can write their they can write their way in the corners because they can do shit like this. Oh, absolutely. But also <laughs> having spent time in the desert in Southern California, just assuming that knowing that you're somewhere in the exterior desert at night yeah. is a bold decision. I've told you stories of stuff that I got up to in high school. And I'm just like, yeah, no, there's you're going to find a coyote before you find them or a coyote will find them before you find them. So the mayhem has shown up and uh, they've read the screenplay and they found them and they're there to rescue them and bring them to Hollywood. Um, so they set off for Hollywood in the Electro Mayhem bus. They're having a good time. They're playing music. Piggy and Kermit kind of have a little alone time in the back of the bus where... Uh, Kermit, whisper sweet nothings into my ear. Motorcycle cop. Maybe my favorite line. Motorcycle cop. Motorcycle cop. Not for nothing, but that is probably my flirting style. It doesn't work, but it's it's memorable, <laughs> and that's what counts. So uh, the reason Kermit has whispered motorcycle cop in her ear is because they're being followed by a motorcycle cop. But it turns out, and they pull over, and uh, even Dr. Teeth knows what's up with the police, by the way. He's totally 13. He's uh, he's he's uh, totally 13, 12. Oh, he knows. Hey, hey, the man with the badge, the police, the cops, the fuzz, the P.I. Don't you dare. Well, I wouldn't think of it. He's like two seconds away from screaming Black Lives Matter. <laughs> but the cop that pulls him over turns out he's Max. Now, we've watched Max have a change of heart throughout the movie, right? He, he flip-flops a little bit. He, he has a scooter's change of heart. Yeah, he's never totally evil, like Doc. This whole disguise is only so I could warn you. Oh, oh yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never thought the Doc was going to hurt Kermit. I only thought he was going to lean on him a little. But now he's got this frog killer in from the coast, and the man is deadly. When we were waving guns at you before, that was mostly child's play. But this, this is serious. Yeah, that's true. He has fired a shotgun at him. I don't know, like, is the, the Trident gun that much worse? <laughs> um, but uh, Kermit has had enough of this. As he says, he's tired of being chased around by a bully, and he has decided we're going to meet. Conveniently, they're they're coming up on an old west ghost town. <laughs> Which I think they shot this. This is the stuff they shot out in New Mexico. Mm. And because um, during the moving right along stuff, my wife was going like, Oh, that's probably Camarillo. She was like pointing to the California locations they were probably using. <laughs> he tells Max, tell Doc to meet us at that ghost town. We're going to have a showdown. And uh, so they pull into the ghost town. Kermit tells everybody to stay on the bus because this is his deal. Although <laughs> Floyd asks if he could take Animal for a walk. Really leaning into this animal is basically a pet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he takes him for a walk and uh, we, we, we run into... Our favorites, Dr. Bunsen Honeydew and his faithful sidekick, Beaker. Which, if you're going to set up a mad science lab anywhere, you might as well do it in a ghost town. They live in a ghost town. What is... They have a mad science lab in a ghost town. That's so weird. Was it always a ghost town, though? Oh, shit. How long have they been there? Since the Manhattan Project? That's haunting. That puts this whole scene... That puts this in a whole new light. I'm sorry. I'm going to keep bringing these things down. (laughs) No, it's no, it's fine. It's just quite possible that Bunsen killed all those people. Anyway, so <laughs> we will um, moving right along. But uh, they meet Bunsen and Beaker, and they have this lab and Floyd and uh, and all we learn from Bunsen and Beaker is that Bunsen has created. We are perfecting our latest invention, Instagrow pills. 
Yeah, well, what in the name of Fat Swaller is that? A four-foot prune. A four-foot prune. Yeah, man, well, what else do these pills make big? Oh, they work on anything, but the effect is sadly temporary. Did the prune eat the pill, or did they just, like, inject it? I thought the same thing tonight. I was like, but how do you get the prune? How do you get... I mean, listen, this is this is the Muppets. Most prunes do talk. There. So, like, that's pot, but we don't see this prune talk. But anyway... So the last thing you see of animal, and this is very important. The last thing you see of animal is him eyeing the jar of Instagro pills. Remember that. So then Hopper arrives and Kermit somehow finds a cowboy hat and some spurs. They were probably laying around. I don't think the people that were there anymore or there before had any use for them anymore. (laughs) Oh, it's so dark. We we have kind of an homage to the classic Western high noon and uh, Doc and... The Doc and his gang square off against Kermit out in the middle of the street. You have the uh, cowboy boot shot. Yeah, we have the shot of Kermit coming out in his spurs and his cowboy boots. Now, see, Snake is with him, right? But Snake doesn't do anything. He's just standing next to Doc this whole time, but like he's not doing anything. And then Kermit's got this great line where he just goes, it's, it's all this build up to this moment. And then Kermit goes, Hopper, what's the matter with you? <laughs> Hopper, what's the matter with you? You gotta be crazy chasing me halfway across the country. Why are you doing this to me? Because all my life I wanted to own a thousand frog leg restaurants and you're the key, Greeny. Yeah, well, I've got a dream too. But it's about singing and dancing and making people happy. That's the kind of dream that gets better the more people you share it with. And, well, I found a whole bunch of friends who have the same dream. And, and it kind of makes us like a family. Do you have anybody like that, Hopper? I mean, once you get all those restaurants, who are you going to share it with? Who are your friends, Doc? Those guys? I don't think you're a bad man, Doc. And I think if you look in your heart, you'll find you really want to let me and my friends go to follow our dream. But but if that's not the kind of man you are, and uh, what I'm saying doesn't make any sense to you, well then, go ahead and kill me. That was traumatic when I was a child, by the way. Hearing Kermit the Frog say, go ahead and kill me. That like made an impression on me when I was little. And then Doc takes a real long think and then says, all right, boys, kill him. Also made an impression on me as a kid. That moment is very cemented into my brain. Kermit, and now all the gang has, of course, come out of the bus and they're surrounding Kermit and supporting him. But um, <laughs> uh. <laughs> Uh, how do we get out of this corner we've painted ourselves into, Nick? They're going to kill Kermit. So the thing is, we were promised a big scene. We were promised... Someone someone was promised a big scene. Right. Animal has been very patient. He's been very good. <laughs> he hasn't done much. He hasn't gnawed on his drums since the first time we saw him in the movie. The second time we saw him in the movie. Animal needed to take his... He needed to stretch his legs... I am concerned yeah. by the fact that Floyd and Dr. Teeth were both standing behind Kermit during that showdown, which means Floyd just either tied Animal up somewhere or let him run off leash. Ooh, I haven't thought about that. Yeah. But Animal, or at least Animal's head, grows. Yeah. And bursts through the roof of the building that he was in as Kaiju Animal. <laughs> Just gets ready to. They they built 
an actual scale animal. They build a 60 foot wide animal head. 60 feet wide, and then it's remote controlled by Frank Oz, who would put a little like glove on his hand, and he could open control its mouth with the glove. 60 foot wide animal head. Animal who has taken the Instagram pills bursts out through the top of the building in a slow motion with a giant roar. Like you say, kaiju to me is more King Kong style. King Kong's a kaiju, isn't he? Is he? I don't know. I don't speak Japanese. <laughs> Uh, an animal bursts out, and this scares Doc, and it scares all of his people, except for Max, who thinks it's kind of... Well, it scares Max, but he also thinks it's awesome. <laughs> like, that Max goes running, too, but then he's also kind of like, yeah! So where is that head now? Because I'm just imagining that it's sitting in someone's, like, shed somewhere that hasn't been opened in 20 years. And someday, someone's grandkids are going to go in, they're going to open that door, and they're just going to see 60-foot animal head staring right back at them and not know what to do. If it was preserved, which it might not have been, but if it was preserved, then it's probably in a vault at Disney somewhere. <laughs> Big, giant, literally climax of the movie where Animal comes out and uh, scares away our bad guys. So if, so if Kermit's appealing to his inner humanity wasn't going to do it, let's scare the shit out of him. Oh, yeah. You've got to have the stick with the carrot. So now we're scot-free. Hopper's gone, apparently. Letting him go. Uh, Max is gone. We got a straight line straight to Hollywood and the gang arrive in Hollywood in the bus. They're playing some music. They pass by landmarks like Santa Monica, the Chinese theater, Capitol Records building. And they end up at Worldwide Studios, which, of course, was the studio at the beginning of the movie where they were showing the screening of the movie. And they come into the office of a producer, the big producer. And the receptionist is Miss Cloris Leachman from episode 224. I am so happy that she got to play more of the Muppets. Her hair was gigantic. It was. I mean, it was huge. Like, I don't know how you keep your head up. And so she comes to the office. Now, I was not uh, uh, I was not pleased with the Muppets in this scene. That's fair. She's just doing her job. It's Hollywood. That show is. She's just doing her job. I learned in my time in Hollywood. I learned that if you want, if you want producers and agents to get back to you, you are nice to the assistants. The number one rule in Hollywood should be. Be nice to the assistants. They're the ones that actually make the schedules. They're the ones that put the calls on the ledger, right? Always be nice to the assistants. But I think she's just trying to do her job. And she says, no, you can't go into the the producer's office. What are you? You're just a bunch of Muppets. And then, But then she reveals she's allergic to animal hair. And so these jerks, I also have allergies, so this is really personal. <laughs> So these jerks get in front of a fan and start flapping their wings and ruffling their fur to kick up all their dander and feathers to basically assault her, commit chemical warfare on her, biological warfare on this poor woman to the point where she has to give in and let them in. Allergies are nothing to sneeze at, as they say, <laughs> as, as Fosse says in the movie. Let's make sure that someone's on site to help with the anaphylaxis. After they've cleared the hurdle of the completely innocent assistant, uh, they come in to the, the office of Mr. Lou Lord. You notice the name? Mm-hmm. He's not, he doesn't have the, the boomerang fish, but he's, he's around somewhere. <laughs> Lou Lord also, a, of course, a uh, reference to Lord Lou Grade. Mm. Who's, I mean, the man who's basically paying for the movie. <laughs> and the Muppet show in general. And who's playing him? The one, the only Orson Welles. Mr. Orson Welles. Don't know much about Orson Welles. Uh, he's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, both in front of and behind the camera. Director of Citizen Kane, Touch of Evil, 
Magnificent Ambersons. He was a radio and stage star. His biggest claim to fame before he made Citizen Kane was his uh, Mercury Theater did a production of H.G. Wells, no relation, uh, War of the Worlds on the radio that actually freaked people out and made them think there was an actual real alien invasion. Thanks radio. He was a troubled genius to say the least, but uh, he changed Hollywood filmmaking forever and kind of reinvented, kind of invented the modern movie. He's a little later in his life. He'd lived for another few years. He's obviously at, at one of his heaviest weights um, that, he, that he was at. He had, a, he had trouble keeping his, he, he was, he, he grew to be a larger gentleman as he got older and the Muppets all saddle up to the, desk and he turns around very menacingly uh mr lord uh, forgive the interruption but i'm here to audition yes, yeah, yes, audition. yes. Uh, we've come over two thousand miles to uh, 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 oh boy uh, Connie, we're all with you uh, 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 please sir uh, my name is kermit the frog and, and we read your ad and well We've come to be rich and famous. It's Tracy. Prepare the standard rich and famous contract for Kermit the Frog and company. He's got like one of the best voices in history. Yes. Like, just flat out. So then we cut to Kermit is sitting in a chair um, in the middle of a studio. And we sing a song. Kind of the the finale is kind of this montage of three different songs, right? We're uh, um, reiterating the movie um, with different set pieces. Yeah. Now, listen, if this is the movie they're making, they're going to fail. <laughs> yeah. Because this is a real cheap-ass looking movie that they're making. It's a standard rich and famous contract. It is not an excessive one. So they uh, somehow crazy Harry gets a job as a lighting engineer. I don't get that. But the Muppets are getting ready for their movie, their movie by moving studio props and dressing the set and everything. Um, Kermit's uh, the director. I like that Kermit's the director. Is that a dig at Frawley since they wouldn't let Jim be the director? <laughs> and they sing a song called The Magic Store, which is about, you know, growing up, being a class clown. It starts when we're kids. I show off at school. Making faces at friends. You're a clown and a fool. Doing pratfalls and bird calls and bad imitations. Ignoring your homework is that dedication. You work to the mirror. You're getting standing ovations. And, uh, and it's a very kind of simplistic vision of how you make a movie. And then the filming starts on the film, and it's basically, yeah, it's a. It's a one-shot recreation of the entire film. Yeah, kinda. It's 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 weird. It's 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 shot one, take one. I want to know what the rest of the movie is, and uh, and we bring back the Rainbow Connection as our Muppets kind of glide through a recreation of the the film that they've just done. Rainbows are memories, sweet dream reminders. What is it you'd like to do? And um, but then Gonzo, and it's a beautiful moment. You're like, oh, okay, the movie's gonna end with the Rainbow Connection, just like the movie started with the Rainbow Connection. But Gonzo's flying in the air with his balloons. 
and he is out of control and he slams into appropriately the rainbow <laughs> the rainbow comes tumbling down it knocks over the hollywood sign <laughs> and then the entire set just collapses did you notice the muppets are like still on the th the set when they collapses oh yeah there's like like if i didn't know any better there's like carnage in there it's the uh the Avengers Endgame rule. Aerial bombardment doesn't hurt you if you're actually a named character. So they, they collapse in the middle of the set and, every, and then Crazy Harry, because he's Crazy Harry, he's like, oh, this is an excuse to blow something up. And he like pulls a couple levers on his uh, board. There's an explosion that opens up a hole in the roof. And what comes through that hole in the roof? Rainbow. A bow or arc of prismatic colors appearing in the heavens opposite the sun and caused by the refraction and reflection of the sun's rays in a drop of rain. And then they start singing something that always gets to me every time I see the movie. Life's like a movie, write your own ending, keep believing, keep pretending, we've done just what we set out to do. looking up at this rainbow and it's beautiful but also like their entire movie just fell apart i hope they were bonded uh but then kermit kind of looks towards the camera in this first words life's like a movie write your own ending and then the camera pulls back and it pulls back and there's and you see more muppets and you pull out and you see more muppets and you soon as the camera's pulling back you start seeing muppets that, are, that aren't in the movie that haven't been in the movie but they're familiar and it keeps pulling back, and the camera keeps pulling back on this crane. And we, we end with a shot of 250 Muppets. And I'm telling you, that shot has never hit me more than it did this time watching it. Because of all of the stuff we've watched up to this. Because in that crowd is like Plubis from Land of the Gorch. All of which I, who, I would have no idea who he was when I was a kid. Everyone from Emmett Otter is in that crowd. Right. Um, some Sam and Friends characters, uh, virtually every Muppet, 250 of them, virtually every Muppet ever created is sitting in this pit or is sitting on the floor of the studio. And that's a really stunning moment, I think. I, I, yeah, like it's and a surreal moment, too, because it's not very it's not literal. I don't think they were expecting everyone to get that either. I think that was mostly for Jim and the guys. You know, at the end of the day, it's the Muppet movie. So. It, there's no, there's not room for every Muppet. There's a lot of Muppets. We're, we're, how far are we in the Jim Henson's career at this point, right? 25 years. It's got a lot of Muppets, you know? Now, the way this was done, by the way, it's really cool. So they, they had, um, they put out a call to every puppeteer basically in the Western half of the United States and, um, and said, we need hands. We need hands. And they dug a six foot deep, 17 foot wide kind of square pit. And they put numbers on the floor and um, they, they got these volunteers in here. I don't know if they paid them or not. I'm sure they did. Um, and they bring them in and they would give them a puppet or maybe two. And they would say, okay, stand on number 17 or whatever your number is. And they would fill and they filled up this giant thing. Uh, two of them were filmmaker, John Landis, who happened to be around then. And he came and did it. And also a young Caltech uh, art student named Tim Burton was also one of the puppeteers in that final shot. Which I thought was pretty cool. But uh, yeah, it's a really glory. And then it ends with this really glorious shot of these 250 Muppets in this rainbow 
kind of coming down onto them like they're the pot of gold. And uh, and it's a lovely moment and always has been. But to me, like I said, this time around, like seeing, and, you know, and I like went, but I went through and I have, you know, you can go on uh, Muppet Wiki and you can find the list of all the Muppets that are in that shot. And then Sweetums comes smashing through the screen because <laughs> he's finally caught up with them. This is the this is the moment where the where the the the, the narrative breaks a little bit. It was always going to break because <laughs> it's like, wait, but wait, is he where, where like is he in the movie or not? <laughs> Sweetums was given a script, did not read the script, allowed to improvise, and then got lost for six months. And then we have our uh, and then we have our end credits uh, where. Um, the credits roll while the Muppets uh, are hobnobbing with each other after the screening. Kermit's kind of going around telling people, you know, they did a good job. What's interesting is I would say go on YouTube and find the alternate version of this ending. Because one thing that's very strange in this ending sequence is the dialogue is real low. Hmm. Like you can't really hear what they're saying. It's in the alternate ending. The dialogue is way pumped up and it's and, and you can hear everything that they're saying. kind of great scene of them all congratulating each other on a good movie and uh and yeah and we fade out and then the and then you know zoot is stoned out of his mind right zoot doesn't go to movies sober (laughs) no so zoot's falling asleep in the back chair and then nick who sends us off animal does in the pre-ferris bueller fashion he wants us to go home go home go home bye-bye i love this movie so much I think I've acknowledged that there's a few problems with it. We've talked about. Mm. Here's the thing: it's, I don't even know if they're problems. They're problems. If you're if, if you're if you're if you're viewing it for a narrative, there are problems. But um, that's fine. I don't care. It's honest about what it's doing. I think the the issue when you come up against a lot of plot holes, narrative issues, is generally speaking, in in storytelling, you're making a promise early on, or you're making a sequence of promises early on, and those promises form your premise and you can subvert expectations. You can put up red herrings, but you should never betray your premise. That's one of my biggest pet peeves when it comes to storytelling by virtue of the fact that the movie does things like inserting the script and being the sequence of vignettes while still generally sort of being a road movie. This movie never really betrays its premise. It's, it's always exactly what it's supposed to be and exactly what it tells you it is. Did it live up to your expectations? I was going in with a relatively blank slate. Like I didn't have, when I say it didn't have high expectations, that isn't to say that I didn't think it was going to be good. 
Right. No, I, I know what you mean. Uh, going through and like re-examining a lot of these uh, for people that are tuning into us for the first time relatively recently, a lot of my background with Jim Henson and the Muppets is based with his non-Muppet, non-corn Muppet work. So things like the Dark Crystal or Labyrinth or the Storyteller or the Tale of Sand. Um, and so the, the core canon is something that I'm, I'm directly experiencing for the first time as opposed to through a general sort of cultural osmosis or Muppet babies. Yeah. You don't have the nostalgia that I have. Not for these parts. I will probably be really obnoxious when we get to the storyteller, but yeah. Oh yeah. You know, way more about the storyteller than I do, but, but yeah, no, I mean, cause, cause with me, like I'll admit, uh, well, what I do think this is a very funny movie and a very good movie. Also, though, it's impossible for me to divorce it from my nostalgia. Luckily, there are and there are plenty of movies that I loved as a kid that don't hold up. And this one does. I don't even think this one gets a cultural content warning on Disney Plus. It's pretty clean. Mm. But um, (laughs) there's uh, I don't know. I I, it's hard for me to to separate the two. But um, I think it's a great piece of filmmaking. And I, I like to reiterate that everything they did in this movie had never been done before. And you can't say that for most films. Most films, you build on top of the films that would come before you. And of course, they're doing that. But but they had to invent everything for this movie. They don't invent everything. No one had ever done this before. And so I think it's worth acknowledging that no one had ever done this before, and they nailed it. <laughs> it was. I, I enjoyed this a great deal. Next time, daylight come and me want go home. So uh, next time, as Nick would say, next time. Um, well, actually, uh, it's the holidays and we are going to be taking a little break for the holidays. Um, and uh, we will be back in the new year with what I believe to be the Muppet Show's greatest episode ever. Ooh, that's a big claim. I stand by it with guest star Harry Belafonte. So we're going to, we're going to, that'll be in the new year when we come back and talk about that. I think I can speak for Nick and say, we wish everyone a happy holiday season. If whatever you practice, and if you don't practice, sorry about all the Christmas carols. And we send you good tidings all the same. Also everyone, please, please be safe. And for holiday recommendations, definitely find yourself a copy of the Muppet family Christmas. In my opinion, that we haven't got to it yet on the show, obviously, but it is from 1987, and it is the greatest Muppet thing ever, in my opinion. Uh, also, uh, Muppet Christmas Carol is also a good watch. Emmett Otter, of course, should be in your holiday rotation. So there's no, you know, every 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 Christmas time for me, you know, we celebrate Christmas. Every Christmas time to me is a um is is very Muppety. Uh, I associate the Muppets with Christmas. The the John Denver album is always spinning. And, um, and so they're a very big part of my Christmases until the new year. My name is Chad. My name is Nick. And thank you for listening. A feat of lunatic daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Aren't you scared to catch up with those guys?